Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats. If you're keeping uh, count at home, this is episode number 30, Big 30 of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, where you can join our conversation. Subscribe to our feed as well. New episodes on most Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or head right over to nationalreview.com, where you can click on the podcast tab, find all the fine National Review podcasts, including Political Beats, and our archives as well. Listen, share, enjoy, leave reviews, please, as well, uh, via those various sites. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And standing by, as always, my co-host, Jeff Blair. Jeff. Hello, everybody. The name of this show is Political Beats, and that's what it's about. Indeed. Our guest today is the executive editor of The Wall Street Journal. He is the author of The Father and the Son, My Father's Journey into Monastic Life. And you can find him on Twitter at Murray Matt. Reverse that. You'll find out. It's Matt Murray. Matt, welcome into Political Beats. Hey, thanks. Uh, great to be with you guys. Really enjoying the show, and I'm thrilled to be on. We will uh, talk about your, your chosen band here in just a moment. But at the start, we always find out a little bit more about our esteemed guests joining the program. And so we ask you, uh, Matt Murray, what exactly is your uh, job? How did you get involved in the uh, political lifestyle, so to speak? <laughs> well, uh, so I'm the executive editor at the Wall Street Journal, and I've been here uh, almost 24 years. Um, and over the course of right now, that well, that, right now that means I'm basically the number two here. So I've got a kind of a finger at everything that we do uh, day to day. Um, in the course of my career, I've, I've had a bunch of different jobs, some of which brought me quite close into the political sphere. I was our, uh, our Washington news editor for a while up here. I've, I've run the U.S. national team, which uh, oversaw Washington, among other things, at, at different points. And, of course, you know, now in my, in my daily job, I've, I've always got some involvement uh, with Washington, among other things. So, so I touch uh, lots of different corners of, uh, of our political coverage here uh, uh, every day. And, of course, you can find Wall Street Journal stuff, WSJ.com. And uh, we move to the the chosen band here today from our guest, uh, Matt Murray. Uh, They're an American rock band from the, uh, let's see, mid-70s through uh, late 80s, I suppose, although the official uh, uh, breakup announcement was in 1991. Um, You might call them New Wave. I think that's how they're basically described, but so many different elements involved in their music, whether it be punk, uh, funk, dance, world music. Uh, Take your pick. And one of the most... uh, uh, unique frontman in rock music history in David Byrne. And if you haven't figured it out yet, it is Talking Heads that Matt has chosen. Matt, we always give the floor to our guest to explain why you love Talking Heads, how you kind of got into them, and why everybody else should care about this band. Well, thanks. And, and of course, thanks for just calling them talking heads uh, rather than the talking <laughs> heads, I should say. Um, you know, I had a couple of entry points to this band. One was actually right at the beginning um, when my sister brought home uh, Talking Head 77. Now, I was in uh, seventh grade and I was not that into music at that point. And so I was, uh, I, it, it didn't, it didn't quite light my fire at that point, but, but, 
you just referred to the uniqueness of David Byrne. And, and I think even hearing her play that record in 1977, uh, you know, this is a time when it's like Super Tramp and the Doobie Brothers mm -hmm. and, and a whole, uh, you know, I, you're, I was just becoming aware of music at that point, but the whole vibe in the, in the, in, in the, on the radio and around was different. And you put that album on and, and we'll talk about it in a bit, but here comes this very different fresh sound and this really mesmerizing, unique uh, twitchy, anxious uh, singer. Uh, so I liked that album a lot at, at that time as she as she listened to it, and and of course I went on into high school. I was probably in high school more into Elvis Costello at that time, but but then I get to college, and it just so happens that as when I show up at college in um, 1983, you're, you're sort of hitting what is the the the, the really uh, the cresting period of their popularity in mm -hmm. my freshman year. You really could not go to a party or an event uh, in, in most places without hearing speaking tongues uh, coming on with all those great grooves and, and dance tunes. Making Sense came along after that, and of course was very popular. And uh, and we'll get into it, but, but Little Creatures, of course, was there too. You've got MTV coming up at the same time, and and they were pioneers uh, there. So so it was really that Talking Heads moment. And it, and then it helped that I had a roommate who was a gigantic fan of the band as well, <laughs> and I I really started to listen to them more seriously for the first time. Um, and I mean, we'll talk about a lot about it today, but they're a band that that for me, not only did I get into them at that time, but but it, they've grown over time. Uh, it is a little bit hard to classify them. There, there's so many different kinds of uh, music uh, going on in there. The, the, the essential tension between uh, sort of David Burns, twitchy, mesmerizing presence and and that 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 beat that groove that mm -hmm. funk underneath is compelling it's a band that even though their discography is not uh enormous it's certainly in those first five records the the evolution from album to album is is great and compelling and they're different experiences and and i think in many ways even 40 years after their their first albums came out the kinds of things they sing about, the kind of world that they paint has stayed relevant in some ways become more relevant. Uh, in, in some ways they foresaw some of the things in, that were coming our way. So th there, it's music that for me has kept its relevance, has held up. It, it doesn't have that feel of nostalgia. It still feels to me very urgent and, and lively and engaging today. So I just find myself often returning again and again to, to them in different ways. And there are so many ways into the band uh, that I, I find that that just really continues to reward um, 
uh, engagement with them, and and so they've just stayed a they've just stayed a big part of my uh, of my uh, life for for really since then. I'll never forget exactly where I was the first time I became aware of the Talking Heads as a band. I was sitting at home at night with my dad, just idling around on the couch. It would have been like I don't know. I would have been like ten years old or something like that. Eleven. We were watching VH1 of all things, and um, I think it was like you know their greatest hits from the '80s kind of retrospective show, something like that. And 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 what should happen? Uh, but that a, a blue screen with little waving patterns of water uh, should should come onto our TV set, and it ripples for a second, and it's silent. It looks like some really cheap, cheap, you know, like you know something done in a, in a in a local you know cable access studio in someone's basement and then all of a sudden boom up pops david byrne wearing glasses and sweating and and, and singing this song uh called once in a lifetime that my you know 10 year old brain was quite simply not equipped to handle or to comprehend I remember like shouting at 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 the TV set. Uh, like, when my dad was there, and I was like, "Say, Dick, Dad, can you believe this? What is this? What is this? This isn't serious." I thought it was a parody of music or a parody of what I had taken to be sort of music video production values. You know, I've been you know, watching stuff like Genesis's Land of Confusion had been on just a second <laughs> before. That's a professional looking music video, right? You know, or, uh, you know, Madonna doing Express Yourself as directed by David Fincher. That's a music video. And then all of a sudden you have David Byrne standing in front of a green screen, you know, sweating profusely, acting like uh, some sort of fusion of um, uh, uh, somebody suffering from Asperger's syndrome, a televangelist or some sort of southern Pentecostal preacher. And the, the biggest nerd that you have ever seen screaming about things like, you know, you may ask yourself, how did I get here? And then all these voices come in. It, I can't even really fully convey what kind of a sonic sensory attack it was on my mind as a child and i never forgot it okay i didn't i didn't see or hear that song again for years but it stuck there so that the next time it came on like the radio or i encountered it in some other context i immediately flashed back to that music video which dug itself into the deep deep folds of my brain matter like nothing else i had ever heard um and I suddenly realized after years of sort of thinking of, well, that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen, that I liked it. And in fact, I found it bizarrely compelling. And it was almost at that exact point where I realized that what we call nowadays is art rock Whoa. or post-punk actually not only was just something I liked or I could absorb, but maybe actually had a further, a stronger hold upon me than any of the, the more conventional 60s and 70s Beatles, Stones, Who kind of stuff that I had come up with when I was a younger child. I, I realized that there was something about this that was so haunting and so compelling that I wanted to find out who, who this band was. Why did they do this? What else is there from them? And it was at that point, this is, you know, 1998, so the internet is there, but it's not really the thing that it is today. Wikipedia doesn't exist. You just, you know, go to a music review website and you see people talking about this band Talking Heads. And I just literally went out to the local record store uh, in, in my freshman year of college and I bought 
all four of their first albums at once. I remember even like, you know, I didn't have enough cash on me. So I told the guy <laughs> behind the desk uh, at the record stores, like, hey, please, I need you to put these on hold. I need you to make sure that nobody else buys them while I run back to my apartment. And he like rolled his eyes at me. He was like, he said to me, he's like, buddy, I'm pretty sure that no one's going to be coming in to buy Talking Heads albums <laughs> in the next 15 minutes, um, which I, I think was funny then. And I think it's funny now because in my opinion, everybody should be coming in to buy these albums. I think those first four albums by Talking Heads from 77, More Songs, Fear of Music, Remain in Light, uh, remain among the most compelling documents of true brilliant art rock eccentricity that uh, the rock era ever created. I think that you can say somewhat the rest of the band's career from that point onwards has, you know, I think there's variable quality and there's a lot of criticism that could be offered, even oh. at the places where the critics praise them the most. But those first four records altered the way I understood and thought about music fundamentally. And as I revisit them, I revisit them periodically. Every like you know, couple of months or so, I go back and I listen to it, and, and I realize that the reason it did that for me, you, it, there are levels that it works on. Uh, there are levels that Talking Heads work on as a band that keep unfolding themselves to me. I keep becoming increasingly fascinated the more I think about David Byrne as a lyricist, as a songwriter. Uh, the more I, I, I feel like there are just incredible levels of subtlety or mystery to the way he conceives of music and the way he conceives of songwriting ideas. I listen to the sound of the band, the sound of the ensemble, and I'm continually impressed by, by all of them as instrumentalists. I listen, of course, to the production touches. And in fact, you know, Eno, I think, was probably the first you know, point of you know, point of mutual understanding that I had with Talking Heads because I knew Brian Eno. So I said, well, you know, Eno produced these. Okay, fine. And, you know, that part of it is fascinating. But the entire story of their career and the aesthetic that they put forth is something that you know, there are lots of bands that say that they are influenced by Talking Heads. Yeah. There are lots of bands that other critics say sound like Talking Heads. Nobody sounds like Talking Heads during their early era, except Talking Heads. They are sui generis. They are a one of a kind group, and that's one of the reasons I love them so much. Yeah, you know, one, one thing just to, just to add on, I think that is so um, when you talk about how unfolding the band is, it, it's a a lot of bands, a lot of great bands are are great at one thing. They do one thing really, really well. And part of what's so rewarding about Talking Heads in their prime is they, there's a, they're a headband and they're a hip band. Mm -hmm. uh, you you could dive into some of their songs and really think about the lyrics and what they're saying, and 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 challenge yourself. And then there's times where the the groove will just carry you away. Right. And, and there's there's I mean and and I suppose it's a bit corny to say, but I think it it actually is, reflects part of David Byrne's own experience the redemptive power of the beat <laughs> sort of can take over and you can lose yourself in the music, which I think he's talked about. It is one of the experiences he would have again and again, performing live and following them on that uh, journey and seeing them get tighter and tighter and then explore that beat and do different things with it itself is, is, is uh, fascinating. They were, they were a band that kept moving. They kept on the move and, and 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 that following that trail with them remains rewarding i think and and that evolution also feels like it mirrors uh this may be wrong this may be just something that i'm projecting onto them but it feels like it mirrors some sort of personal evolution on david burns part you yeah. think of this you know incredibly intensely awkward just completely lives in inside his own mind 
very strange, almost, you know, we'll probably talk about this, but he feels like he's almost on the spectrum. Like, you know, yeah. he has Asperger's or something like that because of the way he observes and he writes about things. Deeply awkward person who somehow finds a level of, of emotional and psychological freedom in the groove. You know, you get you, you go from the, the absolute uptightness of songs like you know, Psycho Killer or the, the music from the first album to The Great Curve, mm-hmm. you know, where the world woos on a woman's hips and you just this absolute freedom of sound expression and emotion. And you, the original Talking Heads, you thought of as a very stiff and uptight band, you know, you know twitchy and, and nervous. And then Remain in Light is, is in fact, you know, and then Speaking in Tongues beyond that, for that matter, are so much different than that. And it almost feels like it's a, a personal evolution in, in a good way towards sort of a more... Uh, an understanding of how to live inside one's own skin, which seems to be a, a sort of a daily trial for somebody like David Byrne. Yeah, yeah, an, an acceptance, a, a certain kind of acceptance. Although uh, I have to say, kudos to your eighteen-year-old self. The whole trajectory of your life could have been different if you happened to go to that record store and buy two stories of naked. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was where I was gifted by. A, I was I was lucky that I had already read a few like critical review sites, and I, I understood that like yeah, you got to get those first four albums. I'm glad I didn't start with uh, yeah yeah. True stories would have turned me <laughs> off forever. That would have been a big mistake. So the the uh, uh, the band itself comes together first as a as a uh, as a trio really uh at the rhode island school of design which by the way don't ask me why no, i'll tell you i wrote a paper on weird uh, uh weird school nicknames you know what the rhode island school of design uh, sports team's nickname is no idea the, the nads n-a-d-s I, I don't i didn't look further to find out exactly what it what it stands for but we can, I, we can make certain guesses i guess of but, course. i guess it must be tied into the cheer whatever <laughs> sporting contests they yeah. might engage in yeah i, I just figured that out yes, yeah yeah go so, right <laughs> yeah david byrne and then uh Dina Weymouth, who wasn't even a musician at the time, uh, Chris France got her to pick up a bass and, and play, basically taught herself from scratch how to do it. And they're right at the beginning of that era of music in New York City. CBGB, which would be uh, later referenced in one of their songs. They played in front of the Ramones in, uh, in what, 75 or so. So they were right in that scene uh, and released, what, what, uh, Jeff, one song as, as this trio, basically. Is that is that right? Yep. Uh, the way it goes is, you know, they started as a trio. Uh, France and Byrne had been in a band uh, when they were at RISD. And, uh, of course, you know, that band falls apart. It's a college group, right? They they all moved to New York City. and They, they have different connections with each other. France and Byrne are, of course, you know, fellow musicians in the same group together. And then France and Weymouth are dating. Um, and, you know, they'll get married. And they're still married to this day. Um, and so, you know, as, as you said, France... They can't find a basis. They want to like start a band in New York City. They all move together. They're living in the same flat, you know, the rents in New York, right? Uh, they got no money, so they're all sharing. And uh, they they say instead of finding some basis that we don't know, uh, Tina here, listen, you, just, you know, why don't you spend five dollars uh, a week, you know, put a down payment on a base at the local store, and then teach yourself to play, which she did, which is hilarious because she started from scratch and she ended up becoming like you know. Very, yeah. very, very powerful, funky and influential bassist after that. Um, so it's kind of like a really wonderful sort of success story. People who you think you, know, you pick up your instrument late in life, <laughs> how good can you get at it? How much you 
know, how far can you take it? Well, you can take it pretty damn far is the answer, depending on how creative you're willing to be. Uh, they had that trio sound, and they got really popular. As you might imagine, the whole CBGB scene was exploding. You had not only uh, the Ramones started there, but you had like Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Um, television came out of that era, Blondie, mm-hmm. and uh, then you had Talking Heads. And of course, of all these bands on this scene, and there are many others that you could name, they were sort of perceived, the songs that David Byrne was coming up with uh, alongside the group, uh, they had a, a much tighter focus. They were very weird and very left field. We'll get into that. But the record companies looked at them and said, well, you know what, maybe we can work with this. So they were actually one of the, the earliest bands to get a major label contract with Sire Records in 1976. The first single they recorded was um, a great song, a song they played all the way up until the end of their live career called Love. And this is, again, how, how eccentric is Talking Heads. Love and then an arrow pointing mm-hmm. to Buildings on Fire. Love goes to building on fire, which sounds incomprehensible when you say it out loud. But if you listen to the progression of David Byrne's lyrics, he's basically saying, like, you know, when I see you, you know, your love is like my face, which is a building which is on fire. It's very awkward and stilted and mannered, but memorably mannered way of sort of explaining that churning sensation that you get inside when you see the person that you love and desire uh and it was you know, the perfect uh introduction to that very very cracked and unique perspective that burn would be approaching all of the lyrics for this band from Yeah, I, it's um, I, this is a band to me. If you listen to their early stuff, they knew pretty early what they what who they were and what they were about, and they come out of the gate pretty clear uh, on that. And that that was one of their their quiet hits, even, even though it didn't end up on the album. I want to mention one other one quickly, which I don't know. You know, you know, you know uh, I want to live, right? Sure. It's it, it was also it was from their first demo. They recorded their demos in like November '75, and that was one of them. And they never went on to record it again. But it made it out on their "Sand in the Vaseline," the greatest hits. It's wonderful. Yeah, song. And, and I and I and I mentioned that song. It's it's a more direct song. Uh, I think David Byrne was still trying to figure out how to how to write uh, lyrics, and it's a very direct song. But what I think is interesting about it is it is direct. It's in in and it's a reminder that. You know, given their 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 affect and given his voice and his his, his tics, you know, they're, they're sometimes kind of thought of as an ironic band. And of course, they're a bunch of art students, and they're aware of what they're doing. But but what is so compelling about David Byrne early on, and as a lyricist and and also as a as a performer? I think part of it is that he's actually very much in earnest. 
he's actually trying to do what artists do, see familiar things with fresh eyes, mm-hmm. describe them in fresh ways, and find ways of taking kind of the quotidian and the familiar in front of us and making us see it fresh. I Want to Live is not that, but what's interesting about I Want to Live is it's actually a very kind of a naked open plea of desire. I want to live. I want to feel a face that isn't there. I want to live. I want to roll over and you're not there. And I think part of the the the, the drama early on particularly is is that this awkward, as you say, you know, you know, he he's, he has said he, he you know self-diagnosed himself with sort of slight Asperger's, but it's kind of you know quasi maybe autistic, nervous, twitchy, anxious person who, but who he almost has like a he almost found a way to like channel into his subconscious and bring his thoughts out, and he wants to understand the world and to connect. And and that's part that's part of what I in, the, in that first album that that that's part of what makes those songs so compelling to me is and, and then and then the the, the singing and the, and the 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 affect he brought it's 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 like somebody discovering these things <laughs> it's right like, oh, and it's, it's, it's he writes a song on the first album called New Feeling yeah. and it like, yeah, for the first time I am feeling this wonderful feeling called love and I and he actually I absolutely sings it sounding like a person who. Just is is struck dumb from incomprehension. <laughs> what is what is this thing that has come over me? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think most of the songs on the album have that kind of, of feeling, and and that's part of what I think made that album. Uh, and I'll let you guys talk about it, but made that album break through, which is which is it's it's discovery. It's it's like it's one of those records when you listen to it where. You, you, it's like you're discovering familiar things all over again. Mm. The naivete of the way Byrne sings these songs reminds me of like outsider art, yeah. um, you know, done, you know, by you know, like the Fauvists or, or, you know, even like prison art it, done by people who aren't practiced and studied in sort of the subtle techniques and the, the sort of tropes that we understand. There's a difference between sort of, a, you know, a Renaissance painter versus uh, somebody who's just working with uh, watercolors or crayons or something like that <laughs> and, and the simplicity the directness with which burn approaches this stuff it, it has that outsider quality which makes it so compelling i've long contended my thesis about talking heads is that it, it makes so much more sense to you burn him as a personality and the lyrics and, and these songs make so much more sense once you realize that he means everything absolutely seriously and yeah. literally yeah. literally that they're, they're, they're you expect as as you guys gestured towards you expect there to be some sort of ironic you know patina placed upon the songs like uh, the distance you know there's snark there um but I, while someone like Byrne is clearly obviously intelligent enough to realize that it can be read and interpreted those ways and he knows it ultimately sits back after writing it or doing it that and realizes yes that will be you know how people read it uh the, the truth is is that every one of these songs is just literally meant you know straight you play it straight you know happy day is about a happy day the book i read is about a book that he read yeah. there's a song on the first album called don't worry about the government yeah. and the joke is that it's entirely sincere david Byrne is saying like listen there are people who work in government buildings who are actually good people and just want to help you so don't worry about the government it's my building
19, that's a, that song especially stands out. You know, in 1977, you're still kind of in your post-60s hangover. Right. And, and, and the funny thing about Don't Worry About the Government. Post-Nixon, like three days of the Condor-level paranoia about you yeah. know, the evil government. Right. right. And, 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 and there's some later writing, I think, where David Byrne was a little more political, actually less successfully. Um, but don't worry about the government. You know, that that's kind of he's actually kind of ahead of the country. That's kind of where the country got about five or six years later. <laughs> right. Um, another one, you know, that that I think is is uh, I look, I'm a big I, I like every song on the album just about and we should we should talk about Psycho Killer. And I'll, I'll let you one of you guys do that. But 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 pulled up is like that, too, where mm-hmm. I, that just really seems to be, you know, people, his parents right. um, helping him out, pulling him up. And 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 he gets the way he sings that and the power of it with the music underneath it. It really pulls it, it pulls you up listening to it. Um, but it, it, as you say, it's Jeff. It's very sincere. It's very earnest. I think, and I think that that might have been one of the things that both made them uh, stand out to people and that people didn't understand about them at the beginning. So we didn't we didn't actually properly intro it, but we sort of moved into talking sorry, about sorry. Talking Heads first album. Um, just just to, you know lay the groundwork. The one important thing that happens is that they decided they wanted to flesh out their ensemble, so they recruited their fourth member, Jerry Harrison, who used to be a member of the Modern Lovers, another one of these great sort of New York bands. They never quite made it because they were ahead of their time. Uh, Harrison plays keyboards and also second guitar. Uh, and he's really kind of you know kind of the, in many ways the musical glue that will that will pull the sound of, thickens the sound of Talking Heads as a band and, and makes them I, I have live recordings from them in the trio years and then from afterwards and they really just like take it up a notch when Harrison joins and they record that first album it's called Talking Heads seventy seven it's about as you know blunt uh, a title as you can get this is our album from nineteen seventy seven and uh, I think it's a fantastic album I think it's actually somewhat underrated because it's not part of the Brian Eno trilogy but Scott I want to get your opinion on this first because I feel like I've crowded you out <laughs> you know my 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 first real introduction to Talking Heads outside of what would be on the radio was from a college roommate. Uh, my college roommate, Andy, was a big Talking Heads fan and tried to get me uh, to be a big fan as well. And I think the problem uh, was, I think he started with Remain in Light, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. this a little later, but I think for an introduction, that's a really rough one to start. And so I, I, agree. I, yes. I, I pushed them away once again. I wish that we had just started from the start. I wish we had started with Talking Head 77 because it's a pretty immediately accessible album yet still contains so many of the of the themes and so many of the of the musical quirks uh that would be present in in albums to come. 77 is a really fine album. It's probably I mean it's the most uh you know if if you heard Talking Heads or New Wave, this is maybe what you have in your head, that sort of sound. To Jeff's point that Matt uh, echoed on Pulled Up, which is the last song of the album. Yeah, uh, there's an earnestness and directness to, to the lyrics of, of kind of a garage pop song. There's, a, there's this song and there's one, um, I think it's I'm Not In Love from the next album, that reminds yeah. me an awful lot of, of, of like early uh, Weezer. And certainly Rivers Cuomo has that David Byrne quality to him too, where sure. he's there, but maybe is a little something that's quite, that's not, that's a little off. And also those first two albums are, are full of earnest and direct lyrics and pulled up, as Matt said, it's a thank you note to his parents, basically. Um, and, and the vocal del- delivery there with the ticks and the whisper to scream kind of vocals and the breathlessness, all of that would be present uh, later on. I slipped and I got pulled, pulled up. I tripped and then you pulled 
is it on 77 is such a fun I, I you know, we just did Paul McCartney and wings on the show I compare it a bit to temporary secretary and that it's right. it's, it's kind of short and spastic and weird and it's almost a sonic experiment to see what could be done in studio with these four members coming together and then the first track on the album oh love comes to town uh is pretty Motown-esque in its, in its bass line and its influences um, and, and kind of would start on that R&B feel that is very evident on their forthcoming albums, at least, you know, the, the modern kind of R&B sound on, on, on albums to come. 77 is, is I mean, it has the, the, the rhythms, it, it has the sudden tempo changes. David Byrne already knows how he's going to sing these songs. Everything is there, and it, I, I do think it's a really good introduction, a first step into the band. I think I just want to point out that well, two things. One is that uh, my my wife's single favorite Talking Head song actually is probably No Compassion, mm-hmm. which is again we're talking about the directness, the disarming directness of David Byrne's lyrics is is a frankly openly selfish song, but is 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 just so so wonderfully bracing in the fact that it admits that. It's an entirely selfish piece. So you know, it's like in, in in a world where people have problems, so many people have their problems. I'm not interested in their problems, you know. <laughs> and I've made some decisions, and it takes a lot of time to push away the nonsense. And my my wife, Noel, she always loves the phrase where we're burned, just like twitchily, like almost like he's he's getting very very upset. So my interest level is dropping. My interest <laughs> level is dropping. It, it almost sounds like it's the internal monologue that goes on in someone's head when they're stuck against the wall at a party and there's some some person babbling yes. onto them about all, all the the, 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 uh, the terrible crap that's going on in their lives and, and it, like I've heard all I want to I don't want to hear anymore yeah <laughs> so many Well, this is so brilliant. Well, and there's, a, and you know, by the way, that that's another side of David Byrne that comes back in, in other songs I, that we'll get to, like "Found a Job." He, he's actually a serious guy. Mm-hmm. He, uh, one of the persistent themes is, you know, get your act together, uh-huh. focus, you know, let's work. I got to say, what the uh, there's two things I want to add about the album and 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 weigh in. One is, uh, you know. You talked, Jeff, about uh, the the CBGBs and the scene they came out of, and this is a band uh, that already partly has its 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 identity together because it is so rooted in being a live band, right. and they play together well, and they're going to get better after this album. I mean, I think on, if you were to criticize uh, this album compared to the later's, you might say, you know, it's it's not quite the best produced album, and the the playing uh, the playing is going to get better for them, but. But they play off each other very well right from the get-go, and they're tight. They're tight. Um, 
and and some of the live versions of these songs are actually better than the, than the, than than the ones that they did in the studio. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, you know, look, we we we've talked about the album, but we haven't hit on you know the, the killer song. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, if, if I can, and you guys might disagree with me on this, but Psycho Killer to me is, obviously, it's one of their biggest hits ever. Obviously, the riff at the beginning of it is is probably one of the most recognizable riffs in rock. I, th- I, I, I discovered, uh, I did not know, that Selena Gomez had just poached it recently for, <laughs> for a recent song. It's it's so well known. And, and you know, I find it, it's a funny song because in a certain way on this album, it's a bit of an anomaly because mm-hmm. it's the one where he's playing a persona. It's right. the one where he's not speaking in his own voice. Well, and you know what he said about it was he wanted to, his inspiration he said was he was listen, thinking about Alice Cooper doing a Randy Newman song, which is a, <laughs> a great interesting idea. And, and to me, the funny thing about that song, I mean, look, I'm never going to turn that song off when it comes on the radio and you can see why it's a monster hit. But it's kind of in some ways the best song on the album and in other ways the silliest song on the album because it is an imaginative exercise inside the mind of a psycho killer. And this was kind of of a time before psycho killers had become such a dominating pop culture topic. But but while I love that song and why while, while, while it just carries you along and while it's a strong imaginative exercise – it's not really as relatable as the other stuff on the album to me. Um, And I think in some ways, David Byrne, I mean, he's always performed that song, but I think in some ways it was that, that song that bands have that is such a big hit that it becomes an albatross at times because it's always expected of them. Right. But you guys might feel differently about it than I do. I think the most interesting thing about Psycho Killer as a song is that if it wasn't called Psycho Killer, if if that title, those (laughs) words were not in the lyric, you would never know that that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. You would just think it's about, you know, another kind of, you know, sort of a neurotic personality of the sort that Byrne is, you know, obviously writes about and obviously I assume, you know, has some basis on his own personality um, because, you know, you know, you know I, I'm tense and nervous and, and I can't relax. Don't touch me. I'm a real live wire. And then because he calls it psycho killer, then you realize, okay, well, this is, you know, an imagined, as you said, an imaginative exercise on, on what mu- must actually be going on inside the head of a person who is you know, like a mass serial killer or some such. Uh, and so that is pretty brilliant about it. that almost uh, it almost it, it's good that it's near the end of the album it's you know it's not the last pulled up as the last song but it's good that it's placed there and say not at the front or somewhere in the middle because it feels kind of qualitatively different from the rest of the material on this record yeah 
You know, yeah. you know, is it, it's true, isn't it? Because you, you're a big fan of them. That Husker Du got their name while trying to blurt out a phrase like the French and Psycho Killer. <laughs> right, and, and of course they took it from a, a Swedish board game called Husker Du, which is "Do you remember?" in Swedish. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was their version of that instead of you know like the "Qu'est-ce que c'est?" You know, you know, "C'est qui je vois?" "C'est soi là?" You know, like you know the way there's <laughs> burn goes into this real pretentious French thing in the middle of it, and that was you know their um, their way of sort of appropriating that same idea. Yeah. One other brief point I want to make on 77, and that's, you know, listening through it again, I'm struck by, you know, they already were such a tight rhythm section uh, on, yeah. on 77. And what I love about the songs is, and it's specifically I, I noticed on No Compassion, which, which Jeff had mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, we're going to throw out this rhythm, and if you don't like it, we're going to change it in a minute. Um, sometimes in the same song. Do you like this one? Is this better? And actually, No Compassion is one I wrote, you know, made a little note. I, I don't like the very beginning of it, but they switch the rhythm about a minute and a half into it, and I like that a whole lot better. Um, and there's a, whole, there's a lot of that, I think, on 77, too, which is just trying out these different rhythms, these different beats, and certainly uh, that would be a sign of things to come on future albums. And of course, that takes us, I guess, to um, well, uh, the big watershed. Uh, what happens next is that uh, Talking Heads. At this point, lots of buzz, you know, among the cognoscenti. The first album is really well reviewed. They have a real hot critical reputation in New York. Um, you know, people who have immigrated to that city are telling their friends back in Britain about this wonderful band. One of them happens to be a fellow named Robert Fripp, who's absorbing the New York scene in the late 70s. He turns to his buddy Brian Eno and he says, hey, you got to get, get a load of these guys. Eno listens to their records. He loves them. And uh, I don't know exactly how it's engineered but he agrees to produce their next album, which is the beginning of a three-album run that is uh, sort of almost like the whole Eno trilogy with David Bowie. You know, Low, Heroes, and Lodger has ascended into the the stars as one of the most legendary collaborations between a band or an artist and a producer. Uh, the first fruit of these sessions is more songs about buildings in food from 1978 their second album um there's a lot so much that can be said about this album this album is one of my favorite talking heads albums to be to be clear uh but the first thing i'll i'll, I'll point out is that and and I'll, i think a lot of casual fans maybe don't realize this is that every single song on that album almost i think the big country maybe have been written later but almost all of the other songs on that record date back to the earliest days of talking heads uh the, the they had a complete batch of songs for the first two records written all at the same time and they really just you know almost like a grab bag they decided to go with the the, the ones that they chose for 77 and then the remainder the leftovers are what they did for more songs about buildings and food which I find almost amazing because the way bands usually handle these things is that you have a sophomore slump right? after you have used all your best material on the first record and then you have the remainders, the leftovers, the hastily written stuff put together in the studio and then you know there's a letdown. I, I think more songs about buildings and food is the opposite of a letdown. I think it is. I think you can make an argument. I might make an argument that it could be their single greatest studio album. Yeah. But uh, let's uh, let's turn the floor over to other people <laughs> to argue with that or agree with it. Well, let me let me get in because I uh, I don't I, I've given this album a, a, a bunch of tries and uh, it is a good album. There's just, there's no doubt about that and there are some highlights I like a lot. 
but I find myself not liking it as much as many other music fans, many other Talking Heads fans, as much as Jeff likes it. It's just not, uh, for me, it doesn't connect as well as uh, probably at least three other albums in their in their canon. Now, blasphemy. That said, <laughs> that said, there's a lot of stuff to like here. Uh, thank you for sending me an angel. The first song really grew on me. The more times I uh, I heard it. Um, Later in the album, look, we just did the covers episode of Political Beats in which I praise Take Me to the River to the Hilt, and I'll just do it again here quickly. Look, this is it's an Al Green tune, as, as most people know, although I would imagine most people heard Talking Heads version before they heard Al Green's version. When you see what the band and Byrne did to it, it's just, it's genius. You, you take the Al Green song, which is already a relatively slow pace, and take it down to an absolute crawl. And musically, band is playing only what is necessary to move it along, but it retains its essential funk, so to speak. And Burns' delivery, the way he twists words, the way he turns river into a multi, well, more than two-syllable word and almost two separate words in the chorus, uh, is just a marvelous turn. Uh, it's one of my favorite cover songs, as it was featured in the episode, and, and a real highlight, I think, of, of this album. <laughs> a job I'll mention quickly because I know Jeff loves, loves, loves this song, but that is a great tune, if not for that opening couplet, right? Damn that television, what a bad picture. Uh, it, that is that is great. And the Big Country, the last song on the album, is, uh, man, you could use, you know, we talk about the coastal elites. Uh, David Byrne wrote them a theme right there. <laughs> Wouldn't live yeah. there if you paid me to. Uh, this is the song for Blue America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talking he, about he, 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 he later he later claim, kind of tried to claim that it was a parody of himself, but <laughs> that never sounds very persuasive. <laughs> no. Um, so again, I mean, some highlights, absolutely. It's a good album, absolutely. I do not like it as much as many others do, and so I'll let uh, Matt and, and Jeff praise it now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I will praise it. I'll be closer to Jeff on it. I mean, to me, uh, first of all, I like every song on this album, um, which I can't say about about some, a couple of their, their upcoming albums, which might even be musically greater or greater as holes, but, but to me have some weaker, weaker spots. Um, and I, I, it's funny because that first album, you know, one of the, we didn't talk about the word, but one of the words often associated with, the, with the early on is minimalist. And, mm -hmm. and in the first album, they, they had a lot of fights with their producer who, who wanted to add a lot of music in. There's a version of Psycho Killer out there with, I think, Arthur Russell playing the cello. And yes, yes. They, they wanted a very stripped down sound. I feel like Brian Eno came in and he amped them up in all the right places. And, and you know, uh, Scott, you talk about thank me for uh, thank you for sending me an angel. Uh, boy, these guys know how to start an album because mm -hmm. that just roars out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And 
David Byrne is doing that, you know, almost that kind of rodeo cowboy. Yes. Thing is a song I like a lot where they brought those singers in. I think uh, some, uh, I forget what the credit is, but they were people who worked in the building singing on that, that, that chorus line, uh, that, that chorus. I like that so much. I love Found a Job. Um, and, and one, uh, you know, one thing I'll, I'll say that you didn't touch on, but, but you can feel the confidence rising. And if you took, sure. I think on the I think on the I think on the original LP found a job was the end of side one and then side two opens with artists only. But if you go to found a job artists only, uh, I'm not in love. Uh, by the way, another brutally honest song by David Byrne. I'm not in yeah. love. Um, and stay hungry, man. All of them uh, have long musical moments where they just cook. They just go. Artists only which is, you know, it's sort of an annoying uh, title, you know, and that's your, your initial impulse is, oh, no, the art school kid's going, although it's actually kind of a, the, the song is actually kind of a strong declaration against the pedantry of art school. But, you know, what gets really exciting is on the back end of that song where they just play and play and play. Yes. What, Found a Job has the same thing. He just, they go on after that, after the after he stops singing, they yes. go on for, yeah. for for a minute, a minute and a half, which, which by the way, is one of the, to me, one of the highlights of Stop Making Sense, too. Um, and, and man, they just cut loose. And to me, this is, I mean, they're, they're very good on the first album, but this is where you really feel the ensemble of the band really clicking. And, and, and this is, to me, the heart of, of the, their the, sort of their live years, um, so I I love the album. I love and like I say, I love every song on it. And and in a certain sense, it's it's um, it's where they really get the, that that rhythm as the base on what they're doing down, and and they just cook. I just love it. A lot of what I was uh, what I would say about more songs actually tracks with what Matt said. You know, there are other albums that that maybe are more ambitious in their later career and, and have you know greater peaks, higher highs, uh, but they also have lower lows. They have songs that I actually just dismiss outright and I don't like. Uh, this is an album that is not only at a consistently great level, but is consistent in itself. That there is no bad song on it, and I think that some of the lyrics here take that that early david Byrne style to its absolute height of perfection you know the, on the next album on fear of music uh he um he edits himself in a little in a little bit he, he's writing you know, specifically themed songs as we'll get to so it takes him in a somewhat different direction and this still has that early you know as we as we said you know the some semi-autistic stream of consciousness going on and, and what that results in is just utterly singular lyrics that, that nobody has ever written before. Uh, I feel like you, you think of bands like um, They Might Be Giants or oh. you know who've tried to, to, to ape this style, but nobody ever really did it as accurately and as, as, as sort of 
sort of naturally as mm-hmm. Byrne did on a song like The Good Thing. There's that this the, the chorus of that song with the voices singing in the background is if you listen to it, it, it makes you just laugh your ass off. Yeah. As the heart finds the good thing, the feeling is multiplied. Add the will to the strength and it equals conviction. What was the line? As we economize, yeah. efficiency is multiplied. <laughs> and to the extent I am determined, the result is the good thing. It, it sounds like you would say it sounds like somebody reading prose into a song, but it doesn't even read like prose that any normal human being would ever write. It sounds like the, these weird sort of self-help nostrums uh, that have <laughs> you know been written by a, a, a slightly oddball person and then put into this song, and in the, all of it works. All of it works because Burns sells it. He sells it with that that wide-eyed, uh, completely straight-faced no irony naivete that uh you know nobody ever again nobody ever imitated in the same way on other songs like artists only i love i love artists only because you know there's that line where burn is just like again screaming he's yawping almost you know it's not just the words but it's his delivery of them that sounds so like manic he says like i don't have to prove that i'm creative i don't have to prove that i am creative and you actually feel like he's actually you know angry and upset he's trying to tell you that he doesn't have to prove that he's creative um but the other thing I want to say about more songs is that I just appreciate so much the sequencing of this album. The Talking Heads never put out a better sequenced record than more songs about buildings and food. These tracks, each and every one of them, build upon one another. They flow into one another in a way that is clearly intentional because there are no gaps between the songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, again, you can say there are better tunes, there are better moments on their later albums. I will certainly agree with you with that. But there is no moment that I love more uh, in the entire Talking Heads discography than the way Warning Sign flows into the girls want to be with the girls. And then that comes to a sudden neck-jerking halt and then bam, <laughs> found a job. Damn, that television. Bow, bow, bow. It is so perfectly you know, queued up and sequenced that uh, it makes you really appreciate the fact that you know these people are working on levels of arrangement, and th- and you know, they're not just churning out songs. They aren't just you know you know com- they aren't entirely naive the way Byrne presents himself when he sings and when he when he does stage announcements. There's a lot of creative thought that goes into it.
the only other thing I'd say is that I don't like the big country. It's the one song on the album that I don't care for. Mm-hmm. I never, the, you know, you talk about it as a blue state anthem, but uh, I, I don't know. There's something a little sour about it that always that always uh, stuck in my craw, and I think the reason isn't even the lyrics so much as it is that ungainly sort of attempt at a country uh, sound what does it open with this sort of feels like it's a bottleneck slide opening you know and i think, I think you know i i think that they even had to slow it down because jerry harrison couldn't play it and uh so i think they had to adjust it to, to make sure he could do that it's a little that one feels a little that's that's the one moment where you just feel a little bit of artifice yes the wrong way breaking through it, it almost is like a flash forward 10 years to uh to true stories Exactly, exactly. But the rest of this album is, it feels, again, it feels as unforced and as natural as Talking Head 77, which of course makes sense since the songs were all written in the same basic time frame. And, and yet it doesn't have any of the, the, the relative weaknesses of that album. There, there are no, there are no weak tracks. There's stuff on Talking Head 77, like tentative decisions and first week, last week. Those aren't that great. There are no other songs on, on more songs about buildings and food that I would say aren't that great. So, Scott, you are, you are outvoted. You are definitive. Yeah, and, and sorry, Scott, but I, I, want, I, I know we want to move on, but I just want to make one more point on, on sequencing, which I think is a great point, which is if you, if you buy into you know, the sort of uh, psychological journey of David Byrne from this kind of spastic, autistic, uh, you know, earnest you know, nerdy guy trying to connect and trying to find his way through you, you, the, the, the second half of this album, the big country actually does stand out in this, but, but leading right up to take me to the river artists only I'm not in love, stay hungry. The music gets, uh, they really cut loose. It really gets wilder and it's where you can begin to feel the transcendence of the music when they're just playing take over the song in a really exciting way, which almost kind of leads to, you know, sort of the, the emotional climax of Take Me to the River. And, and that obviously becomes a bigger element in their music going forward. But, but just listening to, I mean, I like Stay Hungry a lot. I like that song a lot, but I think I like the, the non- The instrumental play out with it's yeah. the weird yeah. ghostly synth tones come yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and this week, Matt Murray with us. Find him on Twitter at Murray Matt, executive editor of the Wall Street Journal, author of The Father and the Son, My Father's Journey into Monastic Life. And this week we discuss the music and the career of Talking Heads. Which brings us to the second Brian Eno album from 1979, Fear of Music. And uh, guys, I don't know if I'll be outvoted on this again, 
However, and the best thing about the show is there's always three, so we never have a tie. Someone is always wrong. <laughs> Someone's always wrong. Uh, I think Fear of Music is actually their uh, Talking Heads masterpiece. I think it's it's their it's their best album, uh, and I'm 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 uh, more than willing to do, to talk about it now or or I'll, or I'll back clean up so to speak. Um, what would you like? Go now. So Fear of Music. Uh, to me, I, I, I think it's, um, for a number of reasons, they're best. But one is that I don't think the band ever sounds more powerful than they do on, on Fear of Music. It's kind of a dark uh, album. It's kind of a bleak album in many ways. But the band sounds so tight, and the band sounds so strong. Uh, the music is a little more dense. Uh, the, the jams are tighter. That rhythm section is so tight. On fear of music, and there's probably you'd say more prominent dance rhythms, uh, almost disco-esque rhythms on fear of music. But there are just a ton of highlights on fear of music, and I think it does work from from start to finish, from the very first one, uh, which is you know basically complete uh, nonsense lyrics, or at least you know un, um, mis- not misunderstood, but you know the, the lyrics don't mean anything at all. It's it's really just about the way the, the song sounds into. What I think is really one of the best songs Talking Heads have done. Mind, what a great song. Um, Fractured bass part, that descending guitar progression throughout. There's a wonderful solo very late in the song. Um, You know, one of the loudest, uh, most aggressive solos, I think, in their their history uh, is right near the end. And, you know, the repeated chorus, which I don't think they use all that often, right? But I need something to change your mind. And some questions, whether that's, you know, that you... Sorry, Scott. Scott, And one of his best, uh, one of his best, uh, I think, vocal performances, too. And the way he chews over the word mind again and again. I don't know if, if you is really you, if it's really me, right? I need something to change my mind. I think that really is what it might be getting to. Life During Wartime, uh, one of the singles, uh, one of the songs people probably know, doesn't mean it's not one of their best. Singles are singles for a reason sometimes. What a great punk kind of funk merger here. And, you know, David Byrne, we, we've talked a lot about the lyrics and the writing process. And, 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 and you know, despite the oddness Boy, Life During Wartime has some of the most memorable lyrics, I don't know, in all of music, but man, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no fooling around, the name dropping of uh, CBGBs and got some peanut butter. Um, there are so many little phrases that Byrne comes up with uh, for the song that fit perfectly and are extremely memorable and that push and pull between guitar and bass and the fade out too, which, you know, to me means this kind of po- post-apocalyptic uh, story continues, uh, though the song is ending. Re- I mean, Memories Can't Wait, one of the key songs on the album. Uh, f- for kind of a dark, ominous album, this is a dark, <coughs> ominous song. Um, that chorus especially, and the reverb plastered all over it. Uh, Memories Can't Wait is such a good tune. And Heaven, which I know is a fan favorite, um, this is one of those songs where Burns' lyrics really um, 
I don't want to say really make you think, which is cliche, but, you know, heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. And he describes these things that, uh, you know, you think would be great hearing this, hearing your favorite song over and over again. Well, there's a limit to that, right? Are, are, are great things really awful in some way, shape or form? Um, wonderful piano from Harrison on heaven. And, and drugs is is one of the most unusual songs in the album, but I think a perfect close for this album. Very minimalist kind of song. Uh, I, I think from start to finish, Fear of Music is the masterpiece from Talking Heads collection. I think the key to understanding Fear of Music, it, it's a fairly simple key, but it's one I, I've noticed when I talk with other people just sort of casually about this album actually oftentimes escapes them, which is that people don't under, don't scan the title correctly. This is not an album about you know having a fear of music or being frightened of music. Rather, it's quote fear of unquote music these yeah. are songs about fears mm-hmm. and the, 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 all you need to do is insert Ezimbra is, is the one <laughs> exception that's just clearly an instrumental jam that they put together and it's the one that most clearly points the way towards the future interestingly enough but the rest of them all you need to do is just put the words fear of yeah. in front of each song and then you understand what the song is about uh, memories can't wait used to be called memories they just added the can't wait so it's you know fear of mind fear of weird things like paper cities fear of life during wartime fear of memories like fear of your own you know insanity fear of heaven and, and, and again so you have what ends up being 10 songs 10 sketches uh, about you know various neuroses and various fears that either David Byrne has or he projects or he uses his imagination to sort of create an image of a person who would feel that way. And in that sense, it is uh, often not appreciated, in my, in, in my view, how different this is from the first two albums. Mm-hmm. Of course, those first two albums were all written together. That's very much Byrne's sort of stream of consciousness lyric writing. This one is, 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 art, is self-consciously an art move. Mm-hmm. He set himself a task. I'm going to write these things. I'm going to write a song about fear of cities. Cities, incidentally, one of my favorite Talking Head songs of all time. You know uh, where he, uh, you know, goes through all these various, you know, various metropolises that you could live in. You know, it's like I'm checking them out. I'm checking them out. Uh, I've got it figured out. Uh, there are good points and there are bad points. I'm going to find myself a city to live in, um, but. Nevertheless, these are all, in a way, character studies rather than personal reflections, which takes them into a different realm from the earlier stuff. The reason I don't like Fear of Music as much as uh, more songs about buildings and food is uh, actually pretty simple. It's not my objection to that approach. I think this is really a successful album in most ways. But if I have to rank them, I'd say just because musically, uh, some of these songs aren't as good. I, I, I don't think that Animals, although it's got an interesting um, uh, interesting time signature, is that great a song. Electric Guitar, I think, is one of the first times there's a, a Talking Head song that's just a waste of time. I don't like Drugs that much. There's an alternate version of Drugs. You can only get it on the box set where Robert Fripp is playing the guitar on it. Mm. Um, he plays guitar on Ezembra as well. Um, and it's much better. It's shorter. It's more to the point, And it's got this very queasy, 
queasy frip playing in his classic style guitar line that runs all over it and that makes it you know seem like this this sort of mildly sickening drug trip that it's meant to be but there are otherwise there are just some of the best music talking heads ever did is found on this album and i, I think the the two in particular that i want to praise because you could praise them all are air and heaven uh, air fear of air this is you know about air pollution you know what is happening to my skin um where is the um the respect that i needed air air can hurt you too some people never have to think about the air it almost reminds me of that character in todd haynes's safe this film that todd haynes did uh where she she has she decides that she has like environmental allergies like she's literally allergic to the actual the modern world so she has to retreat into some sort of like weird kind of almost cult-like hostel uh where she can be you know you know cordoned off from like all of the 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 environmental the toxins in the air and things like that and Mm -hmm. is a beautiful expression of paranoia where you know your concerns about air pollution are just ratcheted up to this ridiculous degree and then of course the other one and i think this is one of the five greatest talking head songs and will make my list at the end is heaven heaven is a place where nothing ever happens this is a I might argue the best lyric that David Byrne ever wrote, uh, at least before he kind of went into his impressionistic style. I think Once in a Lifetime uh, maybe is, is the other one I would nominate for different reasons. But this one is so simple. It, it, it's like almost feels like every verse feels like a haiku. You know, everyone is trying to get into the bar. The name of the bar is called Heaven. And as Scott said, you know, the band in Heaven plays your favorite song. It plays it all night long. And then, and only then, do you realize why this song is on this album. You realize that this is another song about fear, Mm -hmm. about fear of boredom, or heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. And it all comes to a head, a a beautiful climax on that third verse. The the band's arrangement on this song is so restrained. It's carried along by this sort of, you know, very placid piano line, and it never goes off that metronomic tick-tock beat. But then, you know, when that third verse goes, it's hard to imagine that nothing at all could be so exciting, could be this much fun. And then you hear in the background, Chris France just goes, ah! it's almost like a scream of frustration as they swing into heaven. Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. And that, that one little note, that one little like, dimly heard shout in the background seems almost like you know, the catharsis Whoa. from this built up frustration of you know the, the, this paralytic fear of being trapped doing the same thing over and over again for the rest of your life and being told that it's somehow your reward for being a good person.
that is again just you know, psychologically uh, you know sort of observationally uh, <laughs> one of the most brilliant moments of their entire discography so I so I, I I probably split the difference between between you you both on this one I you know this is a part of we didn't really get into it but part of it is that how they compose their music is this is where it really starts to change you know uh, Eno's got uh, I think that they laid these tracks down on this album I think out at uh, at uh, Chris and Tina's house yeah and then they start building up instrumentation on top of it and then David Byrne is kind of writing lyrics. Uh, you know, in the studio uh, on on this, I don't think that this is one. I don't believe, if I'm right, this is one where he came in with a bunch of written songs, and and I, I always feel like that's kind of the strength of the album, and in some ways the weakness of the album. I mean, I you guys mentioned most of the the great songs. I think Mind and with the vocal performance is fantastic. I love Cities, and I love those keyboards that come in on the chorus of Cities. That, that sort of uh, memories can't wait uh, again uh, scott you talked about but i, I really you, i love the outro on that there's almost mm-hmm. a sort of a it almost ended, i think that ended the first side originally and it's almost like you've been getting grimmer and grimmer and then there's a little <laughs> there's a little uptick at the end it's that's very nice um I, I on air um uh you just talked about it jeff you did mention specifically but you know tina weymouth is, is not a great vocalist she doesn't have a uh a, a, a large voice and she's not a big vocal presence here, but I lo- I love the playfulness a little bit of of her singing air. It's almost like it's almost like the air is taunting him. <laughs> right, right. It's sort of like a, also like a parody of like you know the girl group background vocals of like you know like sixties and fifties hit singles. Yeah, I mean, in, in a dark album, it's almost funny. Because- yeah, it's like a na na boo boo kind of a thing going on. I get it. I do, I do find as an album, though I do find, and it, it really turns after Heaven. Heaven is, as you said, it's a beautiful song. Which, by the way, it's a beautiful vocal by David Byrne. Uh, uh-huh. Something he was he was learning to do more. But but by the time I get to Animals, it's sort. I I, I have to admit, when I listen to is yeah, as an album again, I think, okay, what you know, what's next on your list? Um, they're variations on a theme. It reminds me of, uh, if you remember, Life of Brian, when Brian's preaching and, and trying to come up with something to talk about. And they say, oh, he's having a go with the flowers now. <laughs> it's like, now he's going after the animals. Now he's going to put the guitar on trial. It's a little, <laughs> it, it, starts to, it starts to wear a, a bit. Um, uh, uh, but one thing I, 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 I do want to say a couple words about Life During Wartime, which we didn't really hit on. But but in some ways, life during wartime is the song that sums up this this album of paranoia and fear, and 
clearly it's one of their greatest songs. Um, and we almost don't want to talk about it because it's so omnipresent. But I think, um, I think that uh, aside from the greatest, the lyrics that Scott mentioned and, and the cleverness, it's a song I just want to say that in some ways <laughs> feels more relevant today than it might have 40 years ago. Because you, you kind of are listening to this song. It's, it's a bit more of a complete uh, kind of a situation than some of the other songs here. It's, a bit, it's less of a sketch. And you can't figure out, is this a real wartime song? Is it a paranoid fantasy? What's going on with this narrative? But it's one of those songs for me when I talk about the, the relevance of the band. There's a lot of people who, who run around feeling they're living in wartime. <laughs> and some, there's something that that song captures about that mentality that every time I hear it come on, I just think, you know, I can't, I can't describe it any better than that. But it's one of those moments where David Byrne just puts his finger on, on some kind of mindset that just, I think is really, it really resonates. It's really, uh, not to mention the fact that musically the song is great. It always put me in mind uh, of the histrionics of, of a song like uh, Panic in Detroit mm. by David oh. Bowie. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that yes. off of Aladdin Sane, yep. um, which is, is like an, an apocalyptic vision of like, you know, similarly, like, you know, some sort of, you know, you know collapse of authority. In well, I mean, you, know, you could say that Detroit sometimes actually is like the song Panic <laughs> in Detroit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, you know, for me, it was sort of the, you know, getting yourself into that same mindset where, you know, he's like, you know, I've changed my haircut three times. I wear disguises. Uh, you know, why go to college? Why go to night school? There's no point in doing any of that. You know, we have to, you know, hustle for our food. That kind of like, you know, uh, feeling of like living in a siege is what I feel like what Byrne was writing about in that song. Not, not sort of like our life. Lives. I, yeah, you, you can get different things out of it. I remember once, like seeing it played on the bumper of a Sunday morning news show, like after nine eleven. That was like overtime. I was like, oh, no, that's not that's, that's not right. That's not right. Fox but, News, you know. But like, yeah. So I, I, I think of it as David Byrne, like imagining how horrible it would be to be in like Sarajevo or something like that during like you know the you know the Bosnian War. Um, and uh, and I think in that sense, you know, we've translated, of course, to the American context. And I think in that sense, it's really effective. But of course, it's also funny. It's a yeah. funny, funny song. You know, you know, no, no time for Mud Club or CBGBs. Ain't, ain't got any time for that now. No lovey dovey. No lovey dovey. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I I I just think it's a great uh, it's a great um, uh, glimpse into sort of a paranoid mind under siege. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't mean that they don't have reason to be a paranoid mind under siege. Quite literally, if they're in a war situation, they do. But 
but but to me, there's always been kind of a a, 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 a figurative aspect to it as well, where there are people who just live as if it's life under work time when it's not. <laughs> exactly. And that takes us, of course, to uh, I don't know if it's the most beloved Talking Heads album or the most famous Talking Heads album. It may be both of those. It may be neither of those, depending on how we end up grading it here on the show. But certainly, this is the moment that it feels like their career had been heading up towards, and yet it still feels like such a radical departure from everything that had come previously. The album I'm talking about, of course, is 1980's Remain in Light which uh, is the moment where it feels like Talking Heads, a, you know, it's a caterpillar, climbs into the chrysalis, and then emerges as some sort of bizarre world-beat butterfly. Um, the songs here, are they haven't completely disappeared. There are songs, there are choruses, there are verses, but it, it sounds almost nothing like anything that they had recorded up until that point, with the exception, notably, of E. Zimbra, the first song on Fear of Music. And this is also, very tellingly, the album where Brian Eno isn't just producing, he gets songwriting credits on every one of these songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in fact, you hear his voice so prominently on a song like Once in a Lifetime that he's, uh, he almost feels like he's sharing the lead vocals with David Byrne. Uh, this song is, this album is as beloved as they get among critics. You know, you'll find it regularly making, you know, the upper reaches of, you know, best albums of the eighties, you know, uh, you know, top art rock albums of all time. Um, and so nothing we here on this show can say about it is going to alter the overall critical perception of it. But I have a somewhat ambivalent view of it at times, even though I think its best moments are among the best the Talking Heads ever did. I guess I want to turn it over to Scott first. This is, as I mentioned previously, the uh, album that someone tried to introduce me to the Talking Heads to Talking Heads music. And, and, and again, I will uh, kind of repeat myself. I don't think this is a great place to start um it's clearly a fantastic album and it reveals itself through multiple uh listens without a doubt i I like it a ton now having given it time to sort of sort of marinate and also understanding where it comes in the the scope of the of the band's career there's no doubt as jeff mentioned it's both kind of a natural progression and and a big shift from from fear music but they've always the band always was experimenting with different rhythms and different beats and clearly what they were doing with Eno for the past two albums uh comes to fruition in, in, in its most elaborate sense on remain in light there are just so many great instrumental pieces throughout uh the album uh, what did I? I think I heard, or I think I read. Is it Burn? It might have been someone else. Say that what they're doing with a lot of remaining light is almost just being a human human loops and human samples. They would play the same parts just over and over and over again to create exactly the palette they wanted to to create upon. And as as Jeff mentioned, look, everyone knows once in a lifetime that is an incredible song with that that bubbly synth line. I love the ending almost more than anything else with that kind of feedback laced organ from from Harrison that drones over the past or over the last 30, 45 seconds. Uh, the huge chorus. Um, and it works because that chorus has such a huge hook for being such a weird song. You know what the secret musical hook on that song is, by the way, Scott? Listen to the bass on yes. Once in a Lifetime. Yes, yes, yes. And here's the thing that's the most remarkable thing about it it's just the same two notes. Yep. 
played for four and a half minutes. Yeah. Never changing. Yep. No deviation. And it works. And you know what? There isn't a single thing they could have done to improve it. No other bass line would have made that song better than just doom doom doom. didn't need to be anything more than that pure minimalism and it's and you know cross-eyed and painless is one of my favorite tracks on the record and that it has i think two chords and maybe a handful of bass notes and that's it but there is so much of 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 what was happening in new york city the early hip-hop uh that was just beginning to percolate around that time i mean talking heads were right on the, the cutting edge of that that sort of music and the blending i don't know how much you want to get into this right but the blending of what what basically you know whites and blacks were listening to around that time really came together strongly on remain in light i mean cross out and painless has that 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 killer groove and all these instruments i tried to list you know there's there's cowbell loop and there's congas and there's bells and there's kind of electric blips and all that stuff coming together on that again that that palette of the very simple rhythm that they were playing over and over and over and over again Like Houses in Motion, also a quite bit more, uh, the, the more frequently I've listened to Remain in Light. Um, it, it's clearly a classic album. It's clearly uh, a, a, an instance where uh, the band is as tight as they can be, combined with a producer that knows exactly what they want to do. And as Jeff mentioned, even gets songwriting credits uh, on these songs. Uh, the output is incredible. But again, you know, my, my one caveat, my w- one warning is is you might want to listen to more of the band's music before diving straight into Remain in Light and be prepared perhaps to give it two, three, four listens. It's it's rewarding in the end, but it's not in it. I mean, if you gave someone Led Zeppelin four, right, they're going to get it immediately. What makes that such a great record? Yeah, it, yeah. It's going to take more time to fully appreciate Remain in Light. Well, yeah, this is this is like throwing somebody talk talk spirit of Eden like the, <laughs> to, to cover an album we discussed a couple of weeks ago and saying like here just absorb this nah nah it's going to take a few t- few listens. Yeah, I I'd like to I'd like to jump in and and you know I I um this is an album for me that that is it's very divided uh, in some ways for me um, the the i agree with you totally scott on cross-sided painless and you didn't talk about the great curve but i yeah, i love yeah. the great curve i think if you want to get a, a, a for, for a feel of what was going on in the studio as they layered on different sounds and music and voices and guitars and adrian blues on the, the great curve scratching out some very spiky guitar solos mm-hmm. I, I, that is an endlessly uh hypnotic mesmerizing song i will actually just reveal right now i i consider the great curve to be the single best song talking heads ever did well good well yeah i i i that is one of the when you talk about about going revisiting the band i think you would listen to that song forever and never find anything everything out about it 
Um, you know, that takes you to Once in a Lifetime, which, um, you know, I think I think might be the greatest uh, song David Byrne ever wrote or ever will write. It's another one of, of taking the familiar and, and making it unfamiliar. And what I really like in the lyric of the song is the water, the water yes. flowing underneath everything, because... <laughs> That some he hit on something there. I mean, you know, even in uh, even in 1980, you know, sort of complaining about the suburbs was a cliche, but 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 the water has a timeless, you know, arguably if you want to see it this way, sacramental, but certainly in a, a link of of the flow of history and eternity under it. Mystery it brings mystery into that song in in a really I think profound way. I think it's one of the most profound examples of putting the the familiar next to something more mysterious. I like houses in motion. My 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 problem as a listener is that seen and not seen is is when it starts to drop off. And I I admire of course I admire the artistry and I admire the band's effort uh to to push itself and try stuff. And I have that part of me that wants to climb on board the critical consensus with everybody Seen and not seen with the spoken lyric uh, doesn't do that much for me. I think listening wind is really uh, a poor lyric. I think, I think it's one of the earliest examples of of David Byrne kind of tr- projecting into to to somebody else in a way that I just don't find very persuasive or compelling. I listened to listening wind for uh, you know twenty years before I actually realized what it was about. And it, it took, of all things, Peter Gabriel's cover of it on his Scratch My Back album, because he sings the lyrics much more straight and, and with with more emotion, to make me realize it's actually about, like, terrorism. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, mean, about, it's about, like, a native, I guess, in South America or maybe Africa, yeah. uh, and who, who, like, you know, literally, you know, puts up, you know, like a, a bomb and blows up the American colonialists. And that's the wind, you know, he, you know, up comes the wind that makes them run for cover. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's funny. Not, it, it's, it's aside from the fact that, that, you know, uh, David Burns kind of foreign policy views don't interest me that much. I, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I always, I always feel like two songs ago, you were, you didn't know what to make of your life in the suburbs. And now you're going to talk to me about foreign policy, but, but also, I just don't find it persuasive. You know, it reminds right. me of, of oh, I forget the name of the song, but whatever that song uh, Bruce Springsteen did on The Rising, uh, putting himself inside like the the, 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 uh, the Palestinian girl or something. It just doesn't it just doesn't work for me. I admire the effort. I mean, I, I, I'm a supporter of artists uh, trying that, but I just don't like it. And, and the overload doesn't do much for me. I mean, the joke on the overload, uh, you know, was – the story on that song was David Byrne had read about Joy Division, but never heard them. And they decided, based on what they'd read, to try to record a Joy Division song. They came fairly yeah. close, actually. Yeah, and, and, and if you know that, it brings more to the song and to understanding the song. But I, it, it's not a good song. It doesn't do that much for me, you know. It's, yeah, I agree. So I always just feel like if 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 I could take, you know, I mean, it, the first six, but particularly tracks two through sorry the first five but particularly the two through five i think they are that's the talking heads right at the top but the rest of the album just doesn't do as much for me yeah the first half of this album uh is perfect uh you know from born under punches to once in a lifetime uh, it, four songs there it's born under punches take a look at these hands i'd love that <laughs> Cross, cross-eyed and painless great curve and once in a lifetime those are great and then on the second side yeah it, it, it's it, it's a really precipitous kind of tail off houses in motion we all agree that's probably the best song on that side mm-hmm. um 
and then the rest of them are a real step down. The, the sonic conceit is there, but I don't think the songwriting is there. So it, it lets it down. But you know, on the other hand, it's easy to just say, who cares? Because that first side is as amazing as the talking heads would ever get. And I just can't say enough. You know, We've talked about it. You guys have both mentioned it. But I have to throw my two cents in here, too, and say that, yes, I am – Endlessly fascinated as by by once in a lifetime. It was, of course, the song that got me into Talking Heads in the first place. So it always holds a special place in my heart. But I have spent so much time. You know, Matt had a really, really kind of brilliant observation about these, the, the use of the water imagery and uh, that you know, water dissolving, water removing, under the water, carry the water. Um, it has that sort of sacramental, sort of eternal you know, turn and return kind of uh, uh, sensation to it that mm-hmm. makes it feel like you're dealing with these large and unknowable forces in the universe. Uh, but I always interpreted the lyrics of this song in a different way. When I was a kid, you know, and I, I got the albums and I started listening to it, I realized, now I don't know if I'm right or not, but I always heard Once in a Lifetime as David Byrne's take on Kafka's metamorphosis. Mm. That, you know, like, you know, it, it's like, you know, David Byrne awakes one morning from uneasy dreams to find himself transformed in his bed into an ordinary guy instead of the rock star that he is and the, you know the you know the artist that he is he's just some working schlub who uh you know living in another part of the world in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife and you may ask yourself well, how did I get here? This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. <laughs> so I always felt like that was like one of a song about uh, waking up to realize that you are not the person who you thought you were mm-hmm. and realizing that you maybe either because you had led a life that had taken you to a place that you had not expected to end up and you, you realize what have I done? My God, what have I done? Or uh, in the sense of like an actual transformation. Uh, and that's how I took you know the sort of water imagery to mean. So again, this is a song that admits of like all these possibly different interpretations, which is part of its genius. But of course, the other part of its genius is that incredibly sturdy chorus with Brian Eno singing, mm-hmm. "Letting the days go by, let the water hold me down, water flowing under the ground." And it just you know his voice, which is so different from Burns, they come together in harmony, and it works so well, so well for the song.
And the other one, of course, I just want to mention is I just said it's the best song that um, Talking Heads ever recorded, which is The Great Curve. Uh, the 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 choruses with these all these vocals weaving their way in and out, you know uh, the you know, divine to define she's moving to define so say so so say so and then all the other David Byrne choruses the shouting backing vocals you hear Tina Weymouth singing in the background this immense sort of you know it sounds like there are seventeen people singing all at the same time and it's the most joyous and unlimbered. It, sort of freed from inhibition that David Byrne feels like it ever got. He's singing about how the world moves on a woman's hips and it swivels and it bops and it bounces and hops and all of a sudden, you know, you feel like he doesn't have any of the self-consciousness that normally encumbers his writing style. Yeah, it, 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 jo- He's lost is, in the reverie, you know? Joy is a great word and that, that's exactly it. You know, where, where they're building musically on what they did of Fear of Music, on Fear of Music, you know, there was kind of a darkness and a gloominess. And here, there, there's a massive, joyous, transcendent jam. And and almost it's almost an exercise of, of, of how much can we pile on? How much can we get in here? And how can it all fit together? Uh, I mean, it's, 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 and, and it's just fascinating to watch them do that and play with that. It, and and, and to, to hear him get carried away on that. He, it's 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 it, it is one of their great moments, and it's also, you know, David Byrne is always David Byrne, but but it's one where he feels part of a large group, right? Not just him. It's it's it is it is a great song, and, it, and joyous is a good word. And of course, at this moment of their greatest critical triumph, not commercial triumph, but their greatest critical critical success after these four albums, what do they do? They go on hiatus for three years. <laughs> They go on tour, they tour Remain in Light, but after that, they do not return to the studio. They just all split up to do solo projects, and you got to ask yourself, why are they doing that? What's the reason behind how that? How did well, they get here? How did they get yeah, <laughs> My God, what have we done? Uh, there were clearly interpersonal relationship issues within the band at this point, and I think Eno's presence probably didn't help things. I think Tina Weymouth, who's has a pretty bad relationship at this point with David Burns said something like, yeah, working with Eno was really great until he decided that he wanted it to be his band and not ours. Um, you know, and then I think they felt like, you know, Byrne was getting a little too big for his britches. At least certainly Weymouth felt that way. And uh, so instead of going back to record a follow-up to Remain in Light, they took you know several years off and then came back with another album in 1983. Before we get to that, though, I do want to pause and say that the one good thing about this long hiatus, even though it may have signaled the end of their classic era, is that it allowed them to release what I consider to be one of the four or five greatest live albums ever and i'm not talking about stop making sense which people think of as the quintessential talking heads live album no i'm talking about a double record called the name of this band is talking heads it's a compilation goes from you know 1977 record recordings from 77 78 79 and then the whole 80 81 tour and it is uh Two CDs now in the reissued version of the greatest music of the post-punk era in a live context that you will ever hear. And one of the things that you may not have realized, we talked about it earlier, you know, Matt mentioned it, Talking Heads were an amazingly good live band. You might not have thought this, especially when you think of Eno and all the production stuff he brings to it. They were an amazingly crack live band. And this record is the 
most perfect evidence of it. It is, as I said, you know, two CDs, each of them are 75 minutes long. That's a lot of music, and it is the most immensely satisfying thing. Maybe you'll hear in the entire discography, and it may be the thing that I would recommend people buy first, which is strange to say as a buy a live album first. You really could go do a lot worse than to start by buying the name of this band as Talking Heads. <laughs> I'll, uh, I echo that a lot, and I think one thing is you can feel, particularly David Byrne, experimenting with the songs and feeding off the energy of the crowd in, in a really powerful way. The tightness of the ensemble, how they interact with each other. You know, you can hear, you can hear uh, Tina Weymouth's strong bass. You can hear Chris Franz. Uh, th- there's moments in here on the album and really throughout the album but if i think about like how burn sings found the job so aggressively and then franz comes in and bangs out the drums at the end the, the way i think particularly the live uh performances of fear of music serve those songs really really well right. because they, they they are less produced and and they're more vibrant and lively and a little you can feel that energy you know in many ways i think this is the most useful kind of greatest hits for the the for Talking Heads. It doesn't quite have everything on it, but certainly the definitive versions of many of their songs mm-hmm. are on this album. I think. I uh, as weird as of a comparison as it is, uh, I, I I compare it a bit to the Billy Joel live album, which is what songs songs from the attic, which we talked about with Guy Benson on that episode. It, it's a great live album in and of itself. It's a great way, as Jeff mentioned, for people unfamiliar with earlier material to kind of catch up and a great snapshot of a powerful band uh, at their peak. I also will mention, uh, in case the big bosses are listening, I think that National Review should put out a a live album of some sorts and call it the name of this magazine is National Review because everyone (laughs) wants to put the in front of the magazine just like people want to put the in front of Talking Heads. So just a very quick and easy way to clear things up. Just a suggestion. (laughs) That moves us to Speaking in Tongues, the next studio album from Talking Heads. As Jeff mentioned, three years uh, off between Remain in Light and Speaking in Tongues. It featured 
Uh, the only top 10 single that the band would have in Burning Down the House. I think my first time hearing that song might have been in, in Revenge of the Nerds uh, when Ogre burns down the, uh, the frat <laughs> house. Uh, this, guys, is, I, I think, the most disappointing album in their catalog. And I, I don't mean to say worst, but I do mean disappointing. Um, you come off of, of really back-to-back highs, fear of music, and remain in light. And there's a whole lot in Speaking in Tongues that I think is... Um, I don't want to say throw away, but man, it doesn't stick with me at all. Um, the, the songs uh, are, are are lengthy. Not that they weren't in Remain in Life, but these are five minute plus songs that don't earn that time in, in my mind. And there's also some 80s production traps that they start to fall into a bit with uh, with Brian Eno gone. I think especially on I Get Wild and, and even a little bit on Pull Up the Roots, uh, songs sound dated, which you can't say about their previous material. Uh, that being said, there's a there's a few things that I want to highlight. Certainly, burning down the house, and, and just if only for David Burns' uh, vocals, that one syllable at a time delivery he gives in burning down the house. There's a massive percussion sound. Uh, I, I understand that they they wrote it or, or at least conceived of it after seeing Parliament Funkadelic play. Uh, I can hear that in the music. Girlfriend is better. It's my favorite song on the album. It might make my top five list at the end of the episode. They sound really loose here. It, it's a great, uh, it's a great musical track. It continues, you know, themes of paranoia, confusion, throughout David Byrne's lyrics. But that sound to it, that kind of synth funk. I mean, Jeff's our Prince expert, but to me, it sounds a little like what Prince was doing in the early '80s. Very infectious melody, very hooky chorus. Girlfriend is better. Is is, is a really fine song. <laughs> Highlight briefly is Swamp. Uh, very guttural lyric performance from David Byrne. Not a whole lot like other things on the album or even on, on, on various uh, other albums in the career. It's almost, uh, I wrote down, synth blues. Um, kind of has that, and it continues the theme of uh, life during wartime almost. This Kind of this idea of nuclear war and the aftermath. Uh, there's a few 80s production things that kind of stick out. There's some drum machine slaps I don't love from Swamp. But in terms of songs, and those are the three that really stick out to me. I, I, I think, again, I don't want to go quite as far as saying filler, but there's a lot on speaking in tongues that just does not stick with me whatsoever. This is one of the very few albums uh, I would argue is actually worse on CD than it is on its original vinyl. And, 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 and this is not one of those like you know audiophile arguments about, oh, well, vinyl is just a better format. Uh, this is because on CD, 
half of these songs are extended significantly by about a minute, minute and a half sometimes on them. And that does them no favors. Girlfriend is Better is a really good song. Making Flippy Floppy, Slippery People is pretty good songs. Uh, and then on the uh, CD versions, they tack on an extra minute and a minute and a half of sort of jamming uh, that does them no favors whatsoever. Uh, these songs were better in their tighter edits because uh, kind of what ends up being sort of to demonstrate it in the extended versions, which are now sort of the standard versions that everybody gets, is that um, <clears throat> Talking Heads without Brian Eno were still a really good instrumental ensemble, but they did not know how to sort of, you know, to structure and uh, mm -hmm. produce their music so that these lengthy jams didn't feel too sort of spare and brightness. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't need like in a minute and a half of, of the, of, you know, instrumental play out on a, on a pretty simple, pretty infectious, but otherwise fairly simple groove on making flippy floppy. It would have been better as the three and a half minute song that it originally was. Um, so I, I agree with almost everything Scott said about this album. A lot of people say this is their last great album. I don't think it's a great album. I think it, it's, it's half of it at least is just not that good. I don't like Swamp at all. Um, I've never even much cared for This Must Be The Place, which is a big favorite of most fans. Uh, Burning Down The House for their biggest hit single, I don't know, it has one note. The entire song <laughs> is literally just one note, melody-wise, which is a, an interesting structural approach, but I'm, you know, it's never done that much for me. I think the best songs on this album are songs that ended up sounding better on Stop Making Sense, like Making Flippy Floppy and Girlfriend is Better. Mm -hmm. So while I don't hate this record, um, it, it just... It, it is the moment where I feel maybe it was the layoff uh, from work, maybe it's the loss of Brian Eno, or maybe it's just the sort of the, the fraying of relationships within the group, bad communication. But this is the moment where talking heads lose that magic that they had for their first four albums, in my opinion. So, so I'll take some issue with both of you on it, um, although I agree with some of what you say. I mean, there's an element of the album where – you know, they maybe they've got some old Eno fuel in the tank that they're kind of running on, but they're not getting any fresh injections of anything. It, it's a, it is. I mean, look. Uh, by the way, I should say it's very hard for me to be objective about the album, given <laughs> you know, the, the prominence it had in my life uh, when I first got to college and was probably listening to music in a in a more serious way than I ever had before. But I really think musically, particularly as you as you say, Jeff, in the shorter versions, I really I really like the music. I like Swamp a lot. I like that kind of bluesy groove. I like the little sort of synth backdrop, even if something like Pull Up the Roots. Um, you know, it's very hard for me to hear uh, Burning Down the House and not flash back to to um, you know uh, big moments and parties and things like that. And I, and I like I, I like just about all of Side One. I like a lot. I so I feel stronger than you do. I think they still sound like the Talking Heads very much. I, I still I think a lot of it musically is great. I do agree, however, that it's where. By the way, I, I also think in terms of where they turn. Unfortunately, worse is yet to come. But I <laughs> I, I do think it's it's a little inconsequential. Mm. is the best I could say. And, and there's an element to that, which is, and Stop Making Sense captures some of the two. It feels like the culmination, in a sense, of David Byrne giving himself over to the groove and letting the groove carry him away. And and so, in a way, that means some of the lyrics, something like Moon Rocks, are, they're pretty light. <laughs> but but I still think musically, it's a to me, it's a very engaging album and, and very potent one. 
I, I want to add one thing uh, to what you just said about this must be the place because this has become a very beloved song. Of course, it's people play it at their weddings and things like that. And David Byrne, I, it's one of the songs from Talking Heads that he plays solo all the time and that he feels very personal about. And I don't love it either. I, I, I like it okay. I I find it odd that people are so 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 sentimental about it. I mean, I think at this point in his life, among the other things that we're talking about, is he was settling down. He had grown up. He'd met the woman he was going to marry. Um, and, 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 and this song kind of about homecoming is a reflection of that. And so in a personal sense, I can, I can respect it. The, the one thing I'll say I like about the song is I think people hear sometimes uh, more certainty uh, than that is there. There's a kind of a, a shrug of, of a certain degree of ambivalence. You know, he's, 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 there's some poignancy in the song, but, but he's, he's just saying, I, I, I guess this must be the place. You know? <laughs> it's, it's not this is the place. It. It's that, like, I suppose this must be the place. <laughs> yeah. Feet on the ground, head in the sky. So, but but I, I've always puzzled that the song is is become you know like a love song fixture for people. <laughs> I'm not sure they're listening to it. <laughs> so, so before we move on to uh, little creatures, uh, do we have anybody who has any strong thoughts about "Stop Making Sense"? Which is, of course, uh, I think a lot of people in the audience may have strong strong feelings about this album. This is one of the most famous sort of concert films ever made. I would say as a film, it's much better than The Last Waltz, which we, we discussed the band last week. Um, and, and I think I, I really do enjoy it quite a bit as a visual, uh, you know, a visual display. You know, the way it starts off with just, you know, solo David Byrne playing to a beatbox and then the band comes on one by one. And then, of course, by the end of it, you've got this like nine person ensemble just, you know, all playing down all these funky grooves. It's a really transporting concert film. Uh, I'm not sure how well it translates, in my opinion, to an album, just just a sonic document. And of course, I also I, I have to point this out that it is a live album only in the most charitable sense of that right. word, because every single instrument or voice was re-recorded in the studio with the sole exception of the basic drum tracks and maybe the bass. Uh, everything else was redone, so it's more like a remix than it is a live album. But um, a lot of people have a really you know, a really strong place in their heart for Stop Making Sense. How about you guys feel? I mean, it, I, have a, I have an emotional connection, again, given the time where it was for me uh, then. I, I think it captures... It captures a few things about them that, that are interesting. Uh, it captures, you know. Uh, I mean, I will say that I wear the big suit to work every day. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it captures the, the, the one thing I think that is fun about the movie, particularly when you see it, is it does capture the sense of the transcendence of those jams, particularly late in the movie where they're all sweating and they're all, I think uh, they're all you know, pouring it on. And 
the end. It's it's very exciting. You can feel that. You you, you it captures a little bit of David Byrne's artiness, uh, some so, so, way in some ways that I think are slightly irritating. You know, I mean, uh, the lamp thing was inspired by Fred Astaire, and uh, it's it just it feels like an affect. It's a weirdly paced thing. Speaking of the big suit, big suit, because I, I I always I thought I know that he had to go off stage and change into the big suit, but but he goes off and then Tina Weymouth steps up and suddenly it's the Tom Tom Club doing Genius of Love, which is a great song, but at that point in the movie feels completely out of place. <laughs> right. Um, so I I I think everybody who lo- who likes the band and loves music should see it. I just don't think it's 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 now particularly since uh, since Jonathan Demi died. It's it's you know become the thing to be the preeminent all-time greatest movie it's not that it's it, but but it's good it's exciting it captures a certain level of energy and interaction that that's great fun to see i think visually it's more uh interesting than than it is on on, on audio only if you have the uh the cd or or stream it these days um and i felt the same way about the last waltz which which we talked about i as i mentioned then i'm, I'm just not a huge live album guy especially when as jeff mentioned the live album is tweaked <laughs> and re-recorded in the studio afterward I, I have no idea you know what i'm supposed to get out of that if i'm listening to it uh after the fact and after it's been tweaked and and edited and and re-recorded in studio but you know i, I always I, I i do like the visual aspect of seeing a band like this or a band like the band uh, from the past episode, uh, operating and seeing the interactions on stage. It's an interesting visual marker. I, I don't return to the to the audio uh, portion of it at all. At all. I, you know, I said I said it earlier. One thing I will say, I love my favorite moments in it are actually not these sort of big art moments, but but the playing. And, mm-hmm. and so there's a shot uh, kind of from behind them during the long extended outro of uh, Found a Job where Tina Weymouth and David is, is playing bass and David Byrne and Jerry Harrison on the guitar and they're kind of walking forward and walking back and it's to me that's such an exciting shot it just shows and it's so it's just they're just playing and playing that's the stuff in that movie I really like and, and it does show you what a great band they could be um, and, and if you like the band that that's the kind of thing I take away from it and now for some um, uh, incredible whiplash because after all of these sort of transcendent, uh, you know, universe consciousness expanding funk <laughs> and Afrobeat extravaganzas on Remain in Light and uh, Speaking in Tongues, the Talking Heads come back in 1985 with a pop album, um, an album full of you know, relatively brief uh, four-minute pop songs. And uh, also an album that contains two of their biggest hit singles. And the album is called Little Creatures. And I will say this, that this is the moment where I compare Talking Heads, I compare their sort of their critical, um, their career to another band that I'm I'm hugely fond of called The Pixies. Mm. And that I think The Pixies, their first few albums are just as good as any music that was ever made during its era. And then suddenly it's as if a spigot almost entirely shuts off and I find very little to celebrate about uh, the remaining uh, albums in their career. And I feel the same way about Talking Heads. When we booked this show, I went back and and I listened particularly hard to the last three albums of Talking Heads' career. And I was instead returned to the exact same opinion that I have always held, that of these last three albums, Little Creatures, True Stories, and uh, Naked – there are exactly four songs, 
four songs among three albums that rise to the level, the, the, the truly transcendent level of what was sort of par for the course for their best work in their early career. Um, so Little Creatures is the first of these, and thankfully two of those songs that I'm thinking of are found <laughs> on this album. Uh, the band is not stupid. They open with one and they close with the other. Uh, the first one, of course, is And She Was, which I think everybody knows. Everybody knows this song. The world was moving. She was right there with it, and she was. And then the last one, of course, is Road to Nowhere, which I think the cruelest thing I've ever done, uh, the most jerky thing I've ever done is uh, slip the DJ at a wedding for some friends of mine $60 to play Road to Nowhere. Uh, while they were dancing. Um, probably the most antisocial thing I think I've ever done in, in somebody else's wedding. Um, those two songs, I think, are masterpieces. I don't hate the rest of this album. I don't actually have any moment where I say I can't hear this anymore. I do have that with some of their later stuff. Uh, but there's just nothing about it that jumps out to me in any way. It feels like such a shocking drop in ambition and imagination and the question that always comes up to me is what happened is this just the natural result of them deciding to write in a different style or is this the band sort of dissolving in terms of its communication or is it just the, you know, the fact that you know some bands have certain shelf lives and that this is the talking heads approaching the end of theirs i i think part of it is this is really where they were really separating uh, mm -hmm. david byrne was really becoming a big thing. He was already thinking about movies. And, and, and as I understand it, he kind of said to the other guys, hey, I wrote a bunch of songs. Should we go in and record them? And, and, and he brought in pretty finished songs. Uh, I think they did have a desire to go back a little bit in their minds to sort of a simpler uh, band, uh, core band feeling like they had in the earlier days. Maybe it was one, you know, one final effort by all of them, maybe to see if they could do that again. Um, it's this funny thing because you and you didn't say it, but it's their best-selling album. It yep. is, it is, it's the one. It's probably the one Talking Heads album, sadly, that uh, more people who aren't fans of theirs own than anything else. And and that's probably because it was clever videos and they wrote MTV. It's 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 partly because you know, look, you, at least on this album, they're a little more intelligent uh, than, than than other stuff out there. For but, sure. but, but but I agree. It was a big album when I was young, and I listened to it a lot. And and it, it just feels, it, it's fine, but it feels very constrained. It feels very um, sort of uh, stiff. It doesn't feel bold or interesting. Uh, the, the 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 sort of David Byrne character. This is where, uh, to me, it starts to just feel like a shtick a little bit, mannered, not not like a real authentic search for for connection and meaning, but just sort of a vocal ticks and an act and it's just it you know it's very sad to say because and i by the way i, th I think i'll say now i think this is the best of the last three albums at least it coheres but it's kind of dull yeah scott i like little creatures better than speaking in tongues um mm -hmm. and it depends where you put that bar of course but i mm -hmm. i do like it better it, it's different it if you're trying to compare this to Fear of Music and Remain in Light, it will always suffer in comparison. There's just there's just no doubt. If you try to say, is this a good album? Is this a good pop album? I think the answer is largely yes. Um, there are some big differences. Uh, David Byrne gets, I think, uh, writing credits solely on most of these tracks, as Matt alluded to. It's much more of his work yeah. than a band work. He's he's singing a little more, bit more in his natural range, other than the, the, the kind of almost falsetto-esque type stuff that was that, that he'd been doing for years and years. 
And the production on it is 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 brighter. Uh, it's a brighter sounding album, which is why it sold so well, I suppose. But there are some really good. Uh, look, and she was is nearly a perfect pop song. I mean, from start to finish. Uh, it's such a great lyrical theme too. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it, it's a great example of of them getting away with uh, a, a conceit that you know you, you can never get away with if you stated it bluntly. The song for <laughs> people who aren't aware, it's about like you know some. You know, some young teenage girl in her boring suburban house who drops acid and then she wanders into her backyard and she thinks she's having these transcendent experiences. But yeah, at the end of the day, she's just, you know, sitting in a backyard in her Long Island house, you know, having these <laughs> rather mundane experiences that she misinterprets as, uh, you know, deep thoughts. That's really funny. Yeah. It's a really funny idea. And there's yeah. the, the, that wonderful guitar, you know, the dum 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 dum. Um, boom, boom. Different, you know, changing keys, a lot of different, a uh, lot of modulation through the song, changing keys. That last minute or so when it changes from the riff to uh, basically a solo that, that's reverb quite a bit, and there's some harmonies, and then, of course, the dead stop at the end is a wonderful touch. I mean, it's just, a, it's a great pop song. Jeff mentioned Road to Nowhere. Uh, I love the start where those keys sort of just wheeze to life like some merry-go-round starting up. Um Creatures of Love, uh, I, I like. Steel guitar, it's got a country feel. has a line perhaps only David Byrne gets away with, which is, you know, I've seen sex and think it's okay. Um, and then Stay Up Late. Um, look, I, I'm not sure I want to hear David Byrne talking about a baby's pee-pee, but he does. So maybe separate the music from the lyrics on that one. I, I think musically, it's a good song. Walk It Down has a pretty good groove to it. So yeah, I mean... If you're comparing it to their peaks, it's not there. If you're comparing it to Speaking in Tongues, I think it's better. On, on well, merits as purely a, a pop album to, to present the public with this group of songs, it's, it's relatively successful. Yeah, hugely. hugely. And look, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little more negative than you, Scott, but I don't really disagree with with it. I would just say, you know, I, I, the, the line you quote on Creatures of Love, I agree with. On the other hand... <sighs> Creatures of Love. I mean, look, I, I, it represents. The, it also is a song that represents what I what I kind of think of as David Byrne's lyrical challenge at this point, which is he's not really the awkward young weirdo anymore. And so, the, the ultimate thought: we are creatures of love. We are creatures of love. It's actually it's kind of a, a mundane thought for oh, me. Oh yeah, and and that's the part where I I I feel he's trying to grope toward something, but it's just. It's just it's uh, it's it becomes a lot more ordinary here. Even though, as you say, he's got his moment with big lines. David Byrne starts to feel very very mortal here as a writer and as a as an idea person. Sadly, and and I think this gets carried to uh, it, it, its full sort of depth 
on the next album, which is, I think, uh, you know, how to explain this. So uh, David Byrne, uh, you know, because of the success of Stop Making Sense, you know, some Hollywood people decided, hey, you want to make a movie? And he said, yes. And he came up with this movie <laughs> called True Stories. Who says no to that offer? I mean, come Who says like, no? When they, offer you, when they back the dump truck full of cash and give you full creative <laughs> freedom and you can hire a lot of really interesting actors to do this weird sketch of a film that you've come up with over the last several years, you say yes. The movie itself, I would argue, is actually hugely underrated uh, and one of the, the weirdest and most um, sort of unexpectedly profound and uh, thoughtful observations of what life in middle America in the mid-80s was actually like uh, because his observational acumen, as, as an actor, actually, as, as just the narrator, he just plays a narrator in this sort of series of sketches about a small Texas town. Uh, true stories is uh, John Goodman stars in it and there's also Spalding Gray and a lot of other pretty well-known character actors uh, it's pretty great it's definitely a cult film I wish I could say the same thing about the album which is almost in my opinion unrelievedly terrible it is an album of songs that Byrne wrote for the film and he did one version of it where he had the actors of all things mm. the actors from the film sing the songs and then he brought it to the talking heads and he said hey guys let's do our own versions of these and so it's just basically an entire David Byrne vanity project fobbed off onto the talking heads themselves with no real otherwise creative input. There is one song on this record that I genuinely like. I think it's a great song. Uh, it's Wild Wild Life. Mm. And, but again, just to get to the same observation that Matt made, uh, Wild Wild Life gets across on the strength of its music alone. It is a really propulsive kind of late 80s rock track. Got a really nice little guitar line. I, I assume yeah. it's played by Jerry Harrison. I like that. I like the chorus. The uh-ohs. You got some wild, wild life. That works. The lyrics themselves, they don't mean a thing. <laughs> they have no real meaning whatsoever. They are uh, – it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nader. I think, uh, of Burns' lyrical inspiration, uh, which is why, you know, it's a good thing that the music is so catchy, because otherwise it would be terrible. Problem is what affects the rest of this album. I, I I really don't like any other songs on this album. Some of them I don't hate, but there isn't a single one that I feel like I should single out for any particular praise. Quick, quickly on Wild Wild Life, since Jeff mentioned it, um, the, I don't love the mix. I, I like the song. I don't love the mix on it. Tito Weymouth is actually doing some really interesting stuff on the bass, but that bottom end is so buried, buried in the mix you can hardly hear it. But the, she's actually doing some pretty interesting stuff on Wild Wildlife. And the whole album is kind of mixed that way. It's it's a bra almost abrasive uh, in its mix, manic in some ways. Love for Sale is maybe the most aggressive thing they've done in their career. If not, it's in the team picture. It's a very aggressive song. And you also have the flip side, which is, I guess, towards the end, uh, a Dream Operator and City of Dreams, probably the most, what, gentle, um, emotionally connected kind of songs that Talking Heads uh, have done. 
Uh, I like them both all right, but but like Jeff, outside of perhaps those two, Wild Wildlife, um, uh, yeah, and, and even Love for Sale, I can hear once or twice. But it's a tough listen at times because the the mix I think is so abrasive and the lyrics are lacking too. Yeah, you know, my, my my what I wrote down and listening to this one again is generic. This is where it, Talking Heads sadly feels like a generic Talking Heads production factory. And, and even Wild Wildlife, which I agree about the the sort of propulsive nature and it was everywhere, is sort of like a like a professionally produced Talking Head song. It, some of the others, I mean, Love for Sale. Musically, I, I don't mind the, the loud, pushy rip. I, I hate the lyric. I mean, th- there were an awful lot of, uh, as I remember it, there were an awful lot of rock bands in the mid-'80s making a lot of money condemning consumerism in the age of Reagan. Going <laughs> 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 around on that. And and it's just a really uninteresting thought. Puzzling evidence is terrible. I just yeah. think the lyric is horrible. Um, I, I musically, I, I, what Scott just said is true. You know, I find uh, people like us pleasant. Uh, but I just don't, I just, but I find it pleasant in a generic way. There's nothing talking heads or special about it. It could be anybody. Um, and, 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 and I think this becomes a bigger problem even on naked, but city of dreams again, I, the music is okay. But the the lyric is just troweled on, as, as far as I'm concerned, and and it's like all subtlety's been thrown out the window. So I just, it this is really, and I guess we'll talk about it, you know, at the end. But this, we don't need to waste more time on this record. But this is really <laughs> where you feel the, the the talents of the band and the desires and interests of the band really scattering, and it feels that way. Uh, Naked is the the final album of the talking heads uh, discography uh was 1988 or 89 88 i believe 88. 88 sounds right to me yes let's go with that uh recording the, this album in paris or uh, a majority of the album in paris steve lillywhite uh would later do some dave matthews stuff and and producer to the stars in pretty much the next decade yeah you too peter gabriel yeah. xtc he had a lot under his belt by this point yep. so he would he would produce this album and uh and the way they did this uh, they would rehearse. They'd play all day. They'd choose one take that they did to be the the uh, the best one. The lyrics were not done in Paris or when they recorded. They were overdubbed them later on back in New York. This doesn't... Um, I, I don't know if they're trying to recapture a little bit of what happened earlier in their career. There certainly is that feel to it. There's also a very distinct separation between side one and side two. If we're still talking vinyl, I suppose, or even cassette. Um, very different, very different feel. Uh, side two is is much darker uh, in terms of its subject matter and in terms of the songs. Uh, there were a couple things in here I, I don't mind. I, 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 everything feels um, a little more structured uh, on this album than, than 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 in the in the albums they're trying to replicate, I suppose. And David Byrne brought in a bunch of musicians and even sidemen to play on this album. It almost sounds like where you know, the pieces on Remain in Light were all necessary to making the song a, a cohesive thing. A lot of what happens on Naked, when I hear, sounds superfluous. There's just so much stuff happening, and not everything is necessary to, to kind of get things together. The first few songs, Blind and, uh, and Mr. Jones, I like, all right, Mr. Jones has a, kind of a big band feel, samba feel to it. 
and and nothing but flowers is a, is a really good good song too. But there's some really low stuff. Um, I, I think uh, uh, Facts of Life is is a bad song. Democratic Circus is is pretty much a, a bad song. <laughs> uh, so you know it's not quite scraping the depths of true stories, which perhaps is their worst. But there's not a lot. There's not a ton of high points on 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 Naked that I hear. Matt. Yeah, look, uh, I there are parts of this album I think are downright dire, sadly, uh, especially lyrically. I mean, the Democratic Circus is, you know, you've gone from a song like uh, "Don't Worry About the Government" to to you know, sort of these observations. Did you know that our democracy is a circus when people put on shows? <laughs> yeah. oh, How profound! Yeah, I mean, it, it it actually, you know, look, the the album actually feels like a David Byrne solo album. It mm-hmm. really that's what that to, to me when I listen to it. And and as you say, Scott, it's all over the place. Yeah, I, I do want to take one minute to say. Uh, uh, something though about nothing but flowers, which stands in the middle of uh, this album like a skyscraper um, uh, in a desert. I think it, it is, you know, uh, it, it, it first of all it's incredibly uh, catchy groove. Uh, Johnny Marr was uh, was with them, and and uh, I think the Smiths maybe had just broken up, and 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 his guitar is great. And and boy, it moves. I mean, it's I've seen David Byrne live, and he always plays it, and and it just it's propulsive. It's really, uh, it's it 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 it's just a great uh, moving song. It's a great song musically, and and also as as the lyric and as the song goes, it is it is head and shoulders above anything else on the album by a wide degree. It's a very very clever, funny song about. You know, starting off with this kind of environmental idea of the excitement of, uh, of you know, a, a kind of a post-apocalyptic, um, you know, back to nature kind of a world where, which actually turns out to be disappointing because, you know, uh, well, you know, there's flowers here, but I miss Pizza Hut. And <laughs> I miss the conveniences of my old life. And it's, it's, it kind of tweaks the, uh, the, the, the echo movement in a funny way. And it's just a very, very funny song. And I think... I actually, it's a very funny thing to me that it comes along at the end, but for me, it's one of the best songs under the banner of Talking Heads ever. But the the fact that it's such a great song makes uh, the, the the sort of uh, rest of the album's emptiness really manifest. And I, 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 you know, there's a couple things I think that are better than other things. I could, I could, you know, I like Blind okay, I like Cool Water okay, but none of them excite me enough to, to really make a strong case for them. I don't really have very much to add to what Matt just said. I, I agree completely with it, which is that nothing but flowers just towers, just absolutely towers over all the rest of this music uh, to the point where it all feels beside the point. But it's not damning nothing but flowers with faint praise because I agree that that, that will make my top five. That is one of the the greatest things the Talking Heads ever did, and you wonder—you you talk about sort of the decline or the shift in David Byrne's lyrics and his the way he approaches things. Well, this isn't early Talking Heads. This isn't the same sort of wide-eyed naivety of you know '77 or more songs about buildings and food. Uh, but what this is is almost as if all of the humor, and the humanism, and, and, mm-hmm. and the wit, and and sort of the the vibrant the vibrant joy of the entire late era of Talking Heads was collected into one song. It's like this one song has that spirit. Nothing else on Naked has it. Every, every, every couplet 
on nothing but flowers I, you could cite it as a joke. It's just funny, you know. We caught a rattlesnake. Now we got something for dinner, <laughs> you know. <laughs> just talking about just making such brutally accurate fun of like you know eco fetishism, like you know the you know the hippie idea, like oh let's all return to nature and and be one with the earth, and you know then you do that, and then what happens, you know, when you uh you know you need you know, an, an apodectomy, all right? Or you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> it's a, it's a, you know, he has said, and, and he has said it's a, it's kind of a rebuttal to a big yellow taxi. Right, exactly. Yeah. Pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Well, you know what? The parking lot is really useful at times. <laughs> it's really nice to actually be able to, like, drive or to, you know, be able to get more than, you know, two miles away from where you live without having to camp for the night. So, you know, this, all these great lines, you know, you know, this was, you know, don't leave me stranded here. I can't get used to this lifestyle. The way the song ends with a dying fall, and it's just so funny. It's such a well-observed lyric, and it, it, it's so different from everything else on this album, which otherwise feels to me to be just so drab and uninspired. And, and you know, it, you know, Tina Weymouth and Chris France say like, "Well, you know, this is we really love the feeling on this album. It's the first time we felt like we had gotten back to what what it felt like in the early years." And boy, I don't know. I just feel like that that's the sort of distortion that time plays on you in age. Like, you know, <laughs> I got to tell you guys, this is this sounds nothing like what it sounded like in the early era. So yeah, the rest of the album is just a huge disappointment, but nothing but flowers is a masterpiece and a triumph. And really, it's Talking Heads' last real triumph. Yeah. This would be the last uh, album from Talking Heads. Uh, the split official in 1991 via an interview with uh, David Byrne, where he he was uh, he claims he was just trying to get the reporter to stop asking about the Talking Heads, and and then he said they're done. And other members said that's the first we heard about that. Very much some bad blood among the members <laughs> resumes, or not resumes, but uh, remains. Although they did get together to play, what, in 2002 at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction oh, ceremony. Painful. And they looked like the best of friends. <laughs> There's a, the, 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 I, I, I just have to put in a word that, you know, uh, it's part of the trajectory of almost all bands to have their brutal breakups. These guys had a really big, long, extended one, and... And, and between sort of David Byrne's artistic growth in pursuit of his own, you know, growing career and uh, Tina Weymouth's kind of passive aggressive hostility. And uh, you always feel like Chris Franz is like the nice guy trying to keep them all together. <laughs> Boy, it's ugly. I mean, there's a great moment. I think it was in Rolling Stone. And I remembered it all these years, you know, because people were actually writing articles like what are the talking heads doing? Where are they sitting around? Where? David Byrne was on, uh, I think he was on the cover of Time Magazine, and they were all together for a photo shoot. I think they called him Rock's Renaissance Man. And, and they're, they're saying, he's, you know, David Byrne has ascended into one of the greats. You know, he's like David Bowie. or And, and Tina Weymouth, you know, in front of the reporter, she says, yeah, David Bowie, David Byrne, David Berkowitz. <laughs> 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 you know, 
there's just lots of like jibes at each other and nastiness, and I mean it's 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 pretty sour. And and he I mean, William Alf actually called him. He's like you know David Byrne is a man incapable of love. Yeah, yeah. basically just called him out for being like you know inhuman and unfeeling, and that you don't really come back from that. No, no, and and and, and look, I'll, I, if I I don't I, I, we're getting long, but I will just say I I, I don't love his. Uh, you know, David Byrne's solo career to me is very, very mixed. But, but I think that one of the things I can admire about him is he's an artist who is pursuing his vision and wants to keep going and never wants to look back. He has definitively ruled out a reunion of Talking Heads, and uh, Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz, uh, you know, have made clear at different times that you know the main uh, motive for them to do that is money. Um, but, but you know, he he's he is a guy. He's a restless guy who's kept moving. I don't I don't think he's ever found again the magic he had in those early years with the band, for various reasons. But but you know, they keep he keeps going. He keeps doing stuff, and I and I, I admire that. I don't want to see Talking Heads in their sixties wheezing through the arena, uh, playing Psycho Killer personally. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm actually also grateful that I'm not going to have to deal with the inevitable reunion tour. Uh, best to leave it where it was, so we can preserve our memories un, unmolested. Everybody says never, and then you know the cars get back together, and everyone says never, and then Sting plays with the police, and everyone says never, and Paul Westerberg, and Tommy Stinson playing the replacements. I this can't, seems you know, a little I'll, more I'll never it, though. I right? even when Oasis reunites. <laughs> you know, uh, the brothers finally get back together. Yeah, David Byrne is 65, and his yeah. new album, which is not very good, is his first top 10 hit. Uh, well, I think he's doing okay <laughs> yeah, without the aggravation. Right. All, all right. right. We come to the part of the show where all the, all the uh, participants uh, get the opportunity to weigh in with two uh, Talking Heads albums that uh, you must own and five songs you should hear from Talking Heads. We uh, always give the floor to our guest first, Matt Murray, executive editor of the Wall Street Journal. Please uh, go forward with your two albums and your five songs, please. Yeah, I do think you almost can't go wrong to me with the first five albums. Uh, I know uh, for you guys, it's more the first four, uh, but but um, and and the live the live albums are good too. But uh, so there's a lot of ways in. But but for me, my albums won't surprise you. More songs about buildings and food, which I think uh, front to back is the one that I would go return to the most. I like the sounds of it. I like the pro- the, the the band sounds. I, I like every song on it. I, in some ways, it's kind of the the quintessential uh, early quirky Talking Heads. And uh, my second album would be the name of this band's Talking Heads, as we discussed. I think in many ways, it's the best greatest hits compilation. And many of the live versions of the songs are, are more impactful and stronger there. And it, it captures the emotion and feeling uh, of the band uh, and, and just the talent of the band very well. Um, my, my five songs, uh, uh, all of which I think we talked about, are Nothing But Flowers, the great outlier at the end of their career, um, Once in a Lifetime, which I think is their greatest song and the greatest thing David Byrne's ever done, uh, The Great Curve, uh, uh, which is interesting, which I actually think is the song just before that on Remain in Light, um, uh, Life During Wartime, uh, which I uh, still love and find really relevant, and Heaven. Uh, for for my oh, that, that, that's it for me. For my two uh, albums, uh, I think "Fear of Music" is their is their greatest achievement. So 
that's going to be on the list. And uh, just so uh, people don't make the same mistake uh, that, that I did and start with Remain in Light, which I think is a tough place to start, uh, I'm going to th- I'm going to throw 77 on the list. Start with 77 in Fear of Music, and I think you'll be in pretty good shape with with Talking Heads. Song-wise, from, from 77, uh, pulled up the very last song on the album. It's really a fun uh, it's really a fun song, great vocal delivery from uh, from David Byrne, and it's it, it's a it's a great closer to the first album. I'm gonna take two, I believe, from Fear of Music. One is Mind, which you know Matt uh, talked about David Byrne's uh, incredible vocal performance. I think it's a great band performance too, uh, Mind, and also Life During Wartime. Yeah, I think that's one that deserves a place on the list too. Songs that you've just You've got to hear from um, speaking in tongues. Girlfriend is better. And uh, to wrap it up, I will put and she was on. I do think it's their their most perfect pop moment of their career. And again, taken apart from some of the uh, uh, some of the more interesting stuff from Remain in Light and, and Fear of Music. It, it does stand up on its own as being a great, great song. And you should hear it if you're only going to hear five. There you go. Jeff, your turn. It's uh, more than a little disturbing how closely my picks for all these things track with Matt's. Um, We agree completely on the two albums that we would choose. Uh, More songs about buildings and food. They're most consistent. They're most well-sequenced, and it really does do a fantastic job of capturing, epitomizing that early Talking Heads moment uh, where David Byrne was still writing in that that refreshingly naive style. Um, And, of course, the other one would be the name of this band is Talking Heads. Uh, I know it sounds strange to say this, uh, but even if you don't know the first four albums, uh, just buy that. Uh, maybe the Remain in Light era music, you, you need to hear the album itself to hear like it, it, the, the full complexity of the studio approach they bring to those songs. But um, otherwise, and in particularly those 1977 to 79 tracks, this was an amazingly talented live band. They just – it was as sharp as as, as – as, a live wire on stage and it was hugely rewarding to listen to. And it's just, you know, I I can't recommend it strongly enough. My five songs are, well, it's, it's actually a little disturbing how they're almost exactly the same ones that Matt chose. I guess I will start with one that it's different, which is found a job off of more songs about buildings and food. Uh, That is uh, my favorite song on on my favorite album by the band. And I already explained why. It has this relentless rhythm, has this wonderful, again, these instrumental playouts that you hear on all of the early Talking Heads songs that makes it just so rewarding. And it comes as a perfect sort of segue from the song that precedes it on that album. The second one I would choose is Heaven. For the reasons we already discussed, just a wonderful allegory for uh, you know being trapped in, in uh, samsara and having it called heaven to you um, once in a lifetime. Uh, again, we spent our, a lot of time on that. We know, understand why it was great. This is the song that got me into Talking Heads. The fourth one is The Great Curve, which I would say may be the best single song Talking Heads ever did, in my opinion. Matt thinks it's once in a lifetime. I would choose The Great Curve. Boy, you know, you, you wouldn't really go too wrong uh, choosing either of those. And then the fifth one I would choose is <clears throat> Nothing But Flowers, which is, you know, the, as, as Matt said, the great outlier from the band's career. But because we have such an appalling overlap, I will use host prerogative <laughs> to choose a sixth song uh, that I actually wanted to talk about because we didn't really discuss it during the show. And that's Road to Nowhere. Mm. It's the last mm. song off of Little Creatures. It's another one of their all-time greats. Um, 
the beautiful, beautiful moment as Scott described during the show, where like you know the, the uh, accordions and and you know keyboards wheeze to life like some circus calliope is wonderful. But what really makes that song is the uh, the power of the ending, the, the vocal arrangement of the ending. Is a gospel chorus that comes in to sing, you know, there's a city in my mind, come along and take that ride, and yeah, it's all right. Yeah. It's very far away, but it's growing day by day, and it's all right. And then, you know, you hear the voices subtly. It's sneaky, clever, sneaky, clever arrangement. Would you like to come along? You can help me sing the song, and it's all right. And then it repeats again, and it just erupts. And Burns' vocal, one of the best singing jobs that he has done on a Talking Heads song throughout their entire career. You feel actual, you know, emotion in his voice, even as he's singing about, you know, what, nihilism? About how we're on a road to nowhere and this is all a meaningless, you know, journey on the, you know, the circus, the merry-go-round of life. And yet it feels moving. And, and the use of the gospel context almost, you know, makes it feel appropriate. It's like you're singing a, a, a Baptist church hymn um, about the essential meaninglessness of existence. <laughs> it's one of those wonderful touches that, you know, kind of captures just how brilliant a writer David Byrne could be even in the later era of the Talking Heads, and that's how I wanted to end the show. the Political Beach look at Talking Heads. We thank our guest, Matt Murray. Find him on Twitter, at MurrayMatt. He's executive editor of the Wall Street Journal, author of The Father and the Son, My Father's Journey into Monastic Life. Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you, guys. I had a great time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, man. Jeff, you can find Jeff Blair on Twitter at EsotericCD. I kind of like this planning ahead thing we've gotten into. This is not bad, knowing what we're doing next. Nice change of pace, (laughs) isn't it? Uh, So we'll be back at it next week. Remember, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. They're out on Mondays. Or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews, please. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. 
This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.